Pervert's Guide, the to, Pervert's Guide to Ideology. Yes, by Slavoj Zizek. Never heard of him? Mm-mm. That's okay, because I never had either until I saw this documentary called The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. Or as Zizek says, he says, ideology. Okay, so Zizek is this. Uh, I'm, I'm not kidding. This he, or he is no. He's he's, he's Yugoslavian. Okay. Oh, so wow. he was he was born in Yugoslavia. I, I don't know. Remember which state? Could have been Serbia, Croatia, whatever. It didn't matter. Uh, I'll cut that out. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Super Seventy Podcast Special Report on Godar. Okay, fanboys and girls, what we have here is two recordings. The first recording is my son and I, after we recorded the Breathless podcast, chatting about good art. That's about 20 minutes. And after the second recording is me and Dave Anderson chatting about good art as well. That's about, uh, I don't know, an hour and a half. I went over to his house and miked his backyard so we could smoke outside and watch the Astros lose. And, well, that pretty much dictated how the rest of the recording went. We also jumped into Communist Ideology, the amazing October of 2020 film, and we looked at each other's letterboxed way too much. Enjoy. Voodoo souffle, my friend. So, 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 so to wrap it up, uh, <laughs> guess, guess who catches wind of, of her giving this money to the Black Panthers? Yeah. The FBI. Well, and Cointel Pro and J. Edgar Hoover, right? The movie is now officially over, folks. We're going to wrap this wrap this podcast yeah. up. I did really like the ending, though. You did? I liked it. I did like. I didn't like the movie. I liked the ending. Yeah, the beginning so, and the ending. Of so the first, first fifteen minutes first, and the last five. First, first five. <laughs> first five and the last, and the last five. five. Everything in between. That was, was good. That was, was good. Jump cut to shit. It, yeah. Everything else was uninteresting. But anyway. Okay. So the FBI figures out. She's giving money to the Black Panthers, and they are on her like flies on shit. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's bad, and so they deliberately come up with a program to sabotage her career. Oh, and, that's horrible! And drive her crazy. They tap her phones, and they uh, start interfering in her life. In, How? In ways. I'll let you watch the movie, which is on HBO Max. Well, they made a movie about it's it? It's called Seaberg. Okay, and, so... And guess who plays Gene Seaberg? Scarlett Johansson? Like, I don't know. Close. Kristen Stewart. Oh. Who method acts the hell out of oh, this role. yeah. Short. She's amazing. Guess who plays uh, the Black Panther she's in love with? I can't even... Anthony Mackie. Oh no way! Yes, <laughs> it's a okay. match made in heaven, my friend. That, okay, that sounds I mean, a, okay. That sounds to amazing. To see the two of them play off each other, it's like that's interesting. Oh my god! It's, it's, you wouldn't think that would have been a a. Uh, it's not. It's a, a not duo. like it's not like a hey. Oh, what's the obvious casting choice? No, no, it's that's not, not at it's all. It's not at all. But it, it works supremely well. I like Christian Stewart a lot, and I do like yeah. Anthony Mackie. And guess who the FBI agent is who's destroying her life? Um, who's the best? F- um, 
Vince Vaughn. <laughs> Vince Vaughn? <laughs> no, he you cannot. You are so money, Gene. You are so money. You don't even know how much money you are, Gene. That's how much money you are. So it, you That's what he was saying when he, che- when he saw the checks that she was writing. <laughs> this is how much money? I did this because I'm <laughs> smart, okay? <laughs> I sold that truck <laughs> because I'm smart. <laughs> you don't even know. You, I think what my friend so Mitch is money. trying to say is love is blind. <laughs> so... <laughs> so anyway, to, to to bring it back to reality, not, I'm not going to um, believe him. As Seberg, uh, uh, unfortunately, in real life, Seberg uh, got pregnant um, by a person who was not her husband, and it caused an enormous amount of stress on their marriage. But the FBI had leaked to the press that this was the Black Panther's baby, not her husband's. So even though it was it was in fact not her husband's, she was saddled for four yeah, or five yeah, yeah. months with this the world thinking that she had gone off and slept with this this Black Panther, and it was nobody would talk to her, nobody nobody would uh, would uh, extend oh, her you know, film roles wow. or anything, right? That's, nobody, that's no producers, yeah, oh people God. dropped her like a particularly in a, in a racist atmosphere. Like you think is racist now? You know, the nineteen sixties it was horrible. And you know, nobody wanted to talk to anybody who had slept with a black man. Like that was just like, that's, that's taboo. That's crazy. That's, you know, against every rule in normal society. That's how a lot of people thought at the time, even in, in, in a liberal attitude like Hollywood, which was cranking out like, you know, fascist propaganda, like, uh, John Wayne's, uh, the green berets pro Vietnam war movie during Vietnam. Like that's how weird Hollywood is. He was at this in a time. Vietnam war movie. He was. Yeah. The green berets. We'll watch it. sometime. take my money. I want to see this. I don't know. You're going to watch it first. You might take that back. But so anyway, this caused a whole lot of stress. Then the baby died. Oh my God. At, after it was born, like just by a few days. And, and, um, she had actually, I think she admitted to having an affair with, uh, with, uh, someone on set in Mexico when she was shooting a movie there. So the baby wasn't african-american or half african-american it was actually half mexican but to 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 prove to everyone who cared to come to the funeral she had an open coffin funeral in in a glass casket so that everybody could see that the baby wasn't half african-american and uh, the idea of going through something like that as a mother who lost a child in a very vulnerable time, like it, it just tore her apart. And I understand through, you know, half-assed internet research that she tried to take her life on the birthday of her daughter several times throughout the 1970s because the COINTEL Pro anti-Seberg unit at the FBI was making her life such, such hell. And uh, it caused a lot of stress in her relationship with her husband. And eventually... She succeeded, and she did take her life in the late 1970s. I think it was 79 or 80, and uh, nobody knew where she was. She just disappeared one day. Nobody knew where she was. Everybody's all of Paris is running around looking for Jean Seberg. Everybody knows what she looks like, right? And uh, they finally find her in the back seat of her car. A cop sees this car, writes a ticket, looks up the registration, finds out it's Jean Seberg's car. He's writing a ticket to. Oh my God. So they, they go back to the car 
and her body is in the back seat wrapped in a blanket. And she committed suicide. It's this horrible, horrible story about this wonderful, talented actress. of Wrapped in a blanket. Uh, yeah, her own blanket. Yeah, she wrapped herself. She swallowed a bottle of pills and wrapped herself in a blanket and went to sleep. Never woke up. She was hoping nobody would discover her body. So that's why she wrapped herself in a blanket. So uh, what happened? Nine to the, days later. What happened to the whole FBI thing? Like, did oh, they well, get, the they get, they get sued? I hope. No, no, absolutely not. No. Uh, well, she has no living descendants. Uh, her husband, um, he committed suicide like 10 years later. And the, the thank you, J. The, Edgar. Yeah, yeah. What a piece of shit, J. Edgar Hoover. So the the entire uh, thing is, is is this horrible, horrible ending. Now I suppose that you you could look at Breathless in a in a positive light, is it immortalizes her, right? At this this time, that in film does that. You look at, at it does at someone at a certain time, and particularly if you have someone like Marilyn Monroe. Uh, who only, this is true. only did seven or ten films or something like that, and they're just very iconic. She has an iconic image. She never aged. Bridget Bardot does not get that same quality, right? Because she's still alive today, and she's extremely old. And people like to think of her as this young, you know, sex kitten from the 60s that everybody just fantasized about. But if you look at her now, she doesn't meet. It's kind of like the Princess Leia um, paradox that people got into of, you know, I, I had these fantasies of, of Carrie Fisher when I was younger and she doesn't meet those fantasies. Now people have said some very mean things about Carrie what? Fisher and her old age, which make no sense because everyone gets older if you're, if they're lucky enough. Right. But someone like Jean Seberg, it's the James Dean rule, right? She uh, died young. Yeah. So she's, she's forever immortalized and breathless. Like James Dean is immortalized and rebel without a cause. That's true. And uh, some could say Bogart, right? Like Bogart was was meant to play and be a middle-aged man. Like you, if you look Th at that his is younger completely films, true. That is look at his younger true. films, it's kind of like he just doesn't look like he fits. He's right? immortalized in black and white where he is mid-40s. Yeah. That is him. And that's why Cary Grant retired. Because Cary Grant hit a certain age and he's like, that's how I want to be remembered. Respect. He quit. He quit, right? And, and he lived for like another 17, 18 years. So uh, it's a horrible situation. Her real life is a horrible situation for her. But at least that we have this film we can appreciate. Thank goodness. The one good thing I will say about uh, this film and Godard is that I, I think that he did her a solid. For sure. But I agree. I'm, but I am not a fan of Godard. I, I said that I, I liked her earlier. I just didn't like the movie. <laughs> I liked her performance. I liked her acting. I just didn't like the movie. I'm not going to go through uh, my other points here because I want to I want to get down with Dave on some of these. On Because Dave and I are going to get together. And we're going to do a decades rematch and talk about 1987. Why specifically 1987? Well, we did 1984 beforehand. And um, Dave won that fight. <laughs> What was his argument? Well, his his argument was uh, 1984 is is not better than 1974, and it's not better than 1994. I picked a bad year. I was thinking Ghostbusters and Beverly Hills Cop, Temple and, of Doom, uh, Temple of Doom, and like all the, a lot of these other films. He was saying you're you're letting your youth 
and your experience What's at that in 74? age. What's in 74? Duh, The Godfather Part 2. And what else? Oh, tons of things. You want to go back in my notes? Why don't you listen to the podcast? We argue about it for about an hour. You would love it. 94, 94 I understand. Yeah, it's Pulp Fiction. Pulp, Pulp Fiction, uh, yeah. Forrest Gump, you know, and then... Uh, well, that's debatable, but... I know you don't like Forrest Gump, but what's in 64? I'd, why don't you listen to the podcast? Okay, okay. We go through 64, 54, right. 34, 44. I think you'd enjoy it. Anyway, so do you have any final thoughts on Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless? Don't like him. I don't actually that's wrong. I don't like the movie. Um if I was to make a final opinion, I'd have to watch his other movies, but after seeing this, I don't want to. I don't like the jump cuts. I don't like what little story was there. I didn't like um I I didn't like any anything really about it. The only thing I did like was the two actors in it and the first 5 minutes and the last 5 minutes, the beginning and the ending. Everything else, I just... What's the point? And whoever said... Whoever came up with the phrase before and after Breathless, I... Please, put my brain in your vision and tell me what you see, because I have no idea what it is. I do not understand whatsoever. I guess we need to see The Graduate. That might help. Okay. Okay. There's there's definitely a Hollywood legacy that comes out of Breathless for sure. I'm not yeah. I'm not doubting its influence or legacy. I'm just saying, as well, a, like a landmark movie before and after. I mean, yeah. There's yeah. there's a movie that he made later. Um, it was called uh, Band of Outsiders, a band apart. Oh, isn't that what uh, Tarantino named the company after? Yeah, a band yeah. apart. Yeah, his film company's named that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and. There are things that he's doing in a band of par that, that are actually quite like amazing. Like for instance, uh, he takes a, a 35 millimeter camera. He puts like a wide angle lens on it and a wide angle lens is like, that's made for like driving through the city or driving through the desert or putting on an airplane and flying through the sky. It's not meant for uh up shots. And he does a close up shot of this girl uh, that he got and he, she's in like six of his films. Her name is Anna Karina. She died just three or four years ago. And this close-up, using that wide-angle lens that's only like a foot away from her face, it's amazing. It's amazing to see what that, that lens does. And it's used improperly. And there's a lot of things in, in film structure and film form. They teach you in film school Whatever you do, don't do this. And Godard was like, why? Well, I'm in the and boat with him because like... Well, so am I. If yeah. you want to put the lens... If you want to put the wide-angle lens on a 35mm, then go ahead and right. see what happens. So that, that goes back to a famous story about Greg Toland and Orson Welles, where Greg Toland left his cushy job. Of course, Orson Welles is involved. Yeah, and he, and he went to Orson Welles. They were going to shoot Citizen Kane. Welles was looking for a cinematographer. Why do you want to work with me? Is what Wells says. And Tolan said, well, I always wanted to work with somebody who didn't know anything. Because if you don't know anything, <laughs> you get interesting results. Yeah. And so throughout the, the, the shooting of Citizen Kane, Tolan told everybody on the set, don't tell him anything. Do, let let the, him figure small, it out. Let him figure it out. 
And now, he came from the stage, Orson did. Yeah. So he was lighting everything by himself. It's not the director's job to do the lighting. It's the cinematographer's. Because the cinematographer's got to put the, put the camera in Yeah, but no one up. told him. No, nobody ever told him. So he was doing these things, and he was setting up the camera the way that he thought it should go. And they came to him weeks later and said, you know, Mr. Toland is responsible for the lighting. Well, he didn't, he didn't know, and he had to apologize to Toland. Toland was like, no, that's what I wanted, was to find out what you were going to do. Because Toland was constantly thinking, this guy is known for breaking taboos. He wanted to see what taboos he would break in filmmaking. And that's one of the reasons why. Well, it's so distinctive. Very, very much so. And I think that Breathless is very distinctive. In a way. <laughs> in a way. The editing, very. Very much so, yeah. Um, the, the conception and the execution, I think, is distinctive. Dis I just don't think yes. that it works. I mean, my entire, it, it my, it my entire point about Breathless in particular, and I don't know enough about the rest of the films that I saw that I just, most of them are dog shit, but my entire thing about Breathless is as good as it is, wouldn't it have been better if it had a script? Like if you actually... Anything is better than a Anything is better with a script. I don't understand why he didn't, like... This could have been a – if people are already praising it and it didn't have a damn script, imagine what it could have been with a with a consistent one, with something that, you know, you wrote and, like, drafted and you rewrote. You know, that 20-minute scene in the apartment could have meant something. He could have actually been doing something. And so just watching – us watching him go around Paris for an hour, like, it could have been actually, you know – good <laughs> i don't think improvisation as form works uh as a there's an, you should never improv a script you should improv acting hmm. i mean sometimes that works a lot of the times it's like blazing saddles <laughs> <That was Right>. <laughs> <laughs> the sheriff is near okay well uh man thank you very much for sitting in with this with me and and uh dave bailed and and I felt uh, betrayed a little bit, but Ooh, he couldn't he couldn't make it. Yeah, Knife it's in the okay. Back. He's not going to listen to this. <laughs> does does he not like? Breathless? He loves Breathless. Oh. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, okay. he's actually the one who gave me the Blu-ray on it. Yeah, I have the Blu-ray somewhere. I wish I'd have known that before I agreed to this. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. For. Is that the, is that the house in that that James Bond, Bond film? Movie? Yeah, for yeah. your eyes only. Yeah, yeah it might be was it? okay. Yeah. Anyway, that was just. Yeah. Thank you for that, inviting Thank, me. Thanks for hanging out with Luke and I as we watched Breathless by Jean Luc Godard. Okay, folks, here's where the chaos begins. When I went over to Dave's and had the audacity to mic his backyard, and then we talked about every issue under the sun. It's started somewhat orderly and then descended into chaos really quick. Thanks. And we're back with Dave Anderson. How are you doing, Dave? I'm good, Dylan. <laughs> How art thou? Thou art fine. And I suppose that we'll discuss some Shakespeare later. Well, I, I think we should. I... Hey, yeah. by the way, I am ecstatic to be back. Thank you very much for inviting me. This is a joy and a pleasure. 
Oh, that's great to be back. Yeah. And when you're your place, not mine. That's right. I brought the mobile recording studio, just like the Stones used to do. That's right. And it is a delightful day in Houston, Texas. It doesn't happen all that often, so we should totally take advantage when it does. The temperature here is quite nice. It reminds me of Calgary in June. Yeah, or Southern California all, all every day of the year. Around, yeah. All right, so Luke and I watched uh, Breathless. Okay. And... So we have a... You are not a fan, in the slightest, is the interpretation I'm under. Did you listen to the episode on Breathless? I actually have not because I figured it would ruin it, but I may be mistaken and I should have listened to it. And that would have been a good idea before we did this, yeah. Well, you know, I suck. <laughs> okay, so I saw it. First of all, when we planned the last decade or the decade that we're currently in. Correct. It was your idea to bring in Breathless. Yes. Uh, because you said we weren't representing the French New Wave. I, and I agree because it's one of those... Critically important um, steps in the evolution of cinema, especially as it pertains to the right now. There's a lot of things in Breathless that I think are very pertinent to very common, especially auteur, right? And that's not a stunner, of course. But styles and techniques that gets employed from that movie, you can kind of see going forward. That's great, McLovin. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, I mean, you have a, a... in Breathless, there's a lot of shots that really serve no specific purpose beyond just kind of um, experimentation on the part of good art, in my opinion. And they get employed from a storytelling purpose from other uh, directors and different stories. You know, I think I see some of that in Wes Anderson. I see some of it in Tarantino. I see some of it in, um, like, the Hughes Brothers where you've got these not non-linear but certainly almost extraneous camera tricks that in in breathless don't really serve a purpose beyond saying well I'm trying something new where in the other movie they get employed to actually drive the story forward and I don't know if I can specifically notate any individual shot that has a useful parallel in a more modern tone i'm sorry i mean i kind of suck in that regard but you know when i saw breathless there was a lot of things that said that looks really familiar oh yeah that seems important and in other things i kind of recognize it more this is not helping very much i'm sorry (laughs) how many beers have you had so far it's been seven (laughs) well i I do agree with you. I saw things in Breathless that I never saw before 1960, and I certainly saw several times after 1960. So that in in what you were saying as being avant-garde and so on and so forth, I, I completely agree with that. I do think that you can draw a direct line from Godard to Wes Anderson, for example. I mean, look at the American Express commercial that you just oh, said yeah. to me. I yeah. mean, that's, that's like Breathless in one take, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not complaining about looking at the back of Jean Seberg's head as they're driving around Paris for three and a half or five minutes or however long it was. At what point it had, I couldn't tell you. For that particular story, probably not as much as we'd like to think. Yeah. Is there a lawnmower or something going on? Is there a truck in the front yard? No. The what? It's air conditioning. It's air conditioning. Okay. That's all right. Next door. Yeah, the the next door neighbor's up. air conditioning. Yeah, That'll they got to replace it. It's very effective. Oh, yeah. That'll go on for at least 20 minutes. Okay. We're outside. 
because we want to drink and smoke yeah. and talk about movies. So I don't want to trash Breathless because I I see it as something that's important. Right. I didn't like it as as a narrative storytelling thing. No, I can I can dig that. It is really not. You know, it's one of those things that's important, but not not good, if you will. Um, kind of the same way I feel about Blade Runner. I mean, I, I think it's critically important, but I'm not convinced it's a good movie, per se. You know, I don't find the narrative very compelling. I don't find the characters all that intriguing or interesting. I don't want to spend any more time in it. It's not one of those where I have an imaginary sequel that takes place, you know, in the future. It's just one of those things that, when you watch it, though, you're drawn in. And you're somewhat fascinated by just the cinema that's occurring. For me. Right? I, th- I do think when I watch Breathless, I mean, I can't argue with it. There, It's kind of a unremarkable story. Kind of as in being kind. You know, the characters are all somewhere between jackasses and wastes of space. I mean, you can't really get behind any of them. But it is one of those where I found it very compelling to watch because of the methodology that it was told for me. Yeah. Well, there was some, I don't know if he was toying around with distantiation at all, but you and I have talked about how much I don't like Raging Bull because I cannot relate to the character of Jake LaMotta. And you've said several times, well, that's that's the point. Yes. And look, look at him objectively and see what he's done with his life. Mm-hmm. So that you can uh, judge him dispassionately and right. without any type of uh, of bias, and and I get that. But when you when you have uh, Jean Paul Belmondo, who's a, a very attractive French man, he's playing this person is doing despicable things, right? He opens the movie up with gunning down a cop, right? And then to empathize with him over the next hour, I mean, just the bedroom scene alone, where he tells Gene Seberg, "Well, you know, you should have been more careful when he when she says I'm pregnant." Like, I just thought, you, and you bastard. Like, even for 1960, that I was... Yeah, that, it's... I didn't like him. He's a reprehensible individual, for sure, right? And he's got no um, compelling reason to be considered a hero, that's for sure. Um, but it is very similar in many regards, for good art, uh, to, uh, you know, for me, it is very much like Raging Bull, as you bring up, right? In that, okay, these are terrible people that I wouldn't want to meet. It's almost like I'm watching him in a zoo type of atmosphere, right? I'm going to observe how they act and what they do. Maybe never, never, ever understand why they do it, but just going to be propelled by the activities and actions. Okay. Um, I should take a, I want to take a small break now and, and ask you, did you see uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo's funeral last month? No. Okay. I would rather watch that than Breathless. <laughs> okay. And, and I almost don't mean that in a bad sense. Right. Uh, I was captivated. I was entranced by his funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed like all of France stopped. It really did. It seemed. I remember when uh, Mitterrand died back in the '90s, and it was you know it was in the, right in the middle of the Lewinsky affair. Right. And and he passed away, and like Mitterrand's girlfriend came to the funeral and sat next to his wife, and while we were going through this battle in the states, and it was a, it was a very interesting argument. But I don't remember France. Stopping. It just—it just seemed like everybody just took a pause. I'm sure there were several people who didn't, who didn't know him, didn't care, sure. and, and so forth. But the the honors. I mean, they basically laid him in state. The president of France, Emmanuel Macron, mm-hmm. showed up to his funeral. They 
they brought uh, an Italian composer in who knew uh, Ennio Morcone to, to do one of Morcone's scores that he wrote for The Professional mm-hmm. uh, with Belmondo. Um, and the amount of stars that showed up internationally, you know, Robert De Niro and so forth, um, and it was heavily choreographed and heavily staged. And I have to say, it reminded me of those old newsreels that we're all used to watching of JFK's funeral right. down um, what is our Champs-Élysées, you know, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania Avenue, back in 1963. It was shockingly good and uh, on par with uh, last year's Oscars, <laughs> directed by Steven Soderbergh. I really think, like, who, who directed the funeral? Was right. it, was it uh, Luke Brisson? You know? It was, it was that it good. It was so professional. It well was done. that good. And if there I die, were, that's how I want to be remembered. Yeah. And I saw clips of it on, on Twitter, and I just thought, I've got I've to watch the whole thing. So I found it on YouTube, and, and it was a, a French channel that had no subtitles. But, I mean, he was an icon. He right? was an icon, yeah. And it is one of those things where, how do I put this? You know, our icons are not necessarily our greatest, especially from the entertainment world the icons are not necessarily the quote best end of quote not to imply that he wasn't the best for the french or in the world or whatnot but i mean john wayne is he a great actor not particularly no in in fact it it boggles the mind that he got an oscar especially for true grit well i mean that was a you know that was a lifetime achievement achievement. exactly right but it is one of those where he was definitely an icon for sure you know is elvis the best singer of all time no, but I mean, he is undeniably incredible and very influential, but it is one of those where he's an icon and there's going to be some effort put into the image of someone more so than necessarily anything the individual actually did. Wrapping him up, though, like Belmondo seems to possess a an Elan, if you wish, a, a esprit de corps of French nationalism and French mm-hmm. cinema. And I don't know if you can find an American equivalent. I mean, so you mentioned John Wayne. That's yeah, that's yeah. got to be the closest. I mean, that's he the closest, or Harrison Ford, maybe when he passes for American cinema. I mean, it, think about think about taking this actor and lying him in state of the president of of our republic mm-hmm. showing up to his funeral. That's how big that person would have to be. Right. I, I have. I did not see if Jimmy Carter showed up to John Wayne's funeral or not. I'm just. I'm just willing to bet it's, no. Uh, it, it but would, I bet you Ronald Reagan was there. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Gipper was a fan. But it is one of those where I don't know if I have any insight, really. I, I, it's just hard to find that. I think you're going to have a hard time finding that in whatever country you're looking at. Like in in um, Sweden or Norway, where Bergman is from. Norway. I think it's Norway. I think it's Norway. I think it is. Uh, he is heavily identified with Norwegian cinema. Yes, yes. Right? Absolutely. Um, I don't know whether or not when he died, he lied in state and the, and the prime minister of Norway showed up. Probably not, but France is very different, right? I mean, France is, at least my perception of it, it is rather a unique world, you know. Um, well, they feel like they've invented film and then reinvented film. Right. I mean, they've. The French have always been well known for being very impressed with themselves. Yes, uh, I think with reason. Well, yeah, no more so than probably five to seven others you can name. Well, that's true. That's true. But it is one of those where okay, that's that's fine. You know, in the United States, we look at that as you know, 
ugly Americanism or jingoism or whatnot. And over there, they look at it as national pride and they, they joy in it. So, you know. You know, there's also like a, a, a sentimental detachment in the States or mm-hmm. a mindset in the States of uh, we are not our art. And we don't pay publicly for art. Or at least we do, but we don't well, like we, to do it. And we don't like to... Uh, we don't want the public to be the exclusive providers of the art. Right. Yeah. In in France, they particularly in the 50s, they dumped a shitload of money into right. the arts. And that's probably and not as good as nuclear missiles. But right. when you have the U.S. buying the nuclear missiles for you, well, then it's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's just a different culture, right? I mean... To Shurumathun, which I totally butchered sure. the name. Sure. I mean, could you come up with a more iconic individual associated with a specific country's, you know, most popular art form at the time? Probably not. I don't know if he had a state funeral. It wouldn't stun me if they don't, and that's maybe just. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, it, it would not surprise me. But you know, are the Japanese that tied to their cinema? Obviously, the Japanese have always been huge cinema fans. I don't know if they are or not. I really don't have a clue. Right? I mean, I'd be a dumbass for lying and trying. I, I think. But it is one of those that if they were, he would be it. I yes. mean, he was definitely their John Wayne. For sure. Although there are many people, I'm sure, who are suddenly turning off your podcast saying, what a dipshit for even saying that. <laughs> Breathless in 1960. Mm-hmm. Vive Save, 1962. The Pete Soldat. 1963. Contempt, 1963. Band of Outsiders, 1964. Pierre Le Fou, 1965. Masculine, Feminine, 1966. Okay, so in 1963, he did four films. Mm-hmm. In 1965, he did two. In 1966, he did two. 1967, he did three. The man has 130 credits. That's probably Directing big. credits. Yeah. Uh, that's nine. A lot of them are shorts and docs and whatever. But he count, he is the Rainer Werner Fassbender of France or the Soderbergh. Soderbergh. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, but even he wasn't that. that prolific. Yeah, uh, this is crazy. Oh yeah, his output is crazy, and it's it's a combination of admirable and kind of head scratching. But well, then again, you look back and from the pop music standpoint. Back in the 60s, that was very common, right? I mean, you are a Beatlemaniac. How many albums would they put out in a year, especially in the early 60s? Yeah, they put out 10 albums in seven years. So it is one of those things where you have a different perspective relative to now. I mean, Tarantino can go five, six years without a movie. And, you know, it's just not the same situation as it was 60 years ago. So I was about to compare uh, Godard and Fassbender again by talking about their quality. Right. And uh, as we all know, the Fassbender's quality ranges greatly. Mm -hmm. And I feel that uh, Godard does too, although in different ways. And I was about to to smash it. But when you bring up the Beatles, and you could say the same thing about the Doors, who kicked out like four albums in three years, or the... um, the entity of Crosby, Stills, and Nash and all of their incarnations. They kicked out in a stupid amount of albums. Yeah, it was or nonsense. It was the, crazy. Or the Beach Boys, who did one every 18 months for like 25 years yeah. or something. And God, I wish with that time was still occurring. I could always do with another Kings of Leon album, for sure. Or a Dave Matthews Band, right. or, or what have you. Um, 
So I, I think I'm going to withdraw that argument. No one is going to mind if you crack a beer. You just have to tell us what it is. It is a Hopadillo. I just finished off uh, my last 11 Blow uh, Double Citrus, and I'm pretty happy. <laughs> I'm on my second Ziegenbach. That's after I had a coffee and a, uh, another coffee, and then I had a Topo Chico. So we did do the barbecuing today. So. Then we did the barbecuing, yeah, with the meat loaf. Meat loaf. So the Viva Sav, um, I don't know if you've seen it. Have not. I like, mean, you've got access to the Criterion Channel. I, I've have, got access to the Criterion Channel. I have not watched it. Um, I don't get a chance to watch near as much as I want. Right. To have you seen any other Godard films? I think I saw Contempt a very, very long time yeah. ago. And it was pretty brutal to watch. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. So, Vivsav was about a girl's fall from grace. Okay. Almost like the House of Mirth type of situation where this ordinary average girl who's doing okay all of a sudden finds herself in a place that no girl should ever be. I actually had an enormous sympathy for the character. And I found what uh, what he was doing really good are. I mean, very interesting. And, of course, that's Anna Karina's first film okay. that, that she does. And that one that one turned me and um only it has it has a similar ending um that as breathless and that didn't impress me much unfortunately but as a whole i enjoyed the film now the petite soldat the little soldier which Mm -hmm. which was a film that was so controversial because of the algerian content that godar had to shoot it in uh, switzerland okay um that that bored me stiff it really that really did and I didn't, again, the narrative didn't, didn't interest me. Then I saw Contempt, which I thought, this has everything in it that I should love. And, uh, and it doesn't work. No. Uh, it's got Technicolor. Mm-hmm. It's, it's shot in 70 millimeter. Just which is always a hold, joy. Hold on to your hat. I mean, right. You can't Technicolor 70 millimeter. You can't go wrong. Uh, Fritz Long playing himself. Mm-hmm. Um. A very strange-looking house that looks like it's out on Capri, which I've noticed is also used in Liliana Cavani's *The Skin* from 1980. Unexpected. Same, same uh, set, same house used in that film. But *Contempt*, uh, Jack Palance. Yep. *Have Gun Will Travel*, Mr. One Arm Push Up. One Arm Push Up, exactly. Curly from uh, *City Slickers*. Mm-hmm. And although I greatly appreciated. Um, the style of it, I was utterly bored to death. Yeah, I did, like I said, I, I, I saw it. Gosh, it must be thirty years now. And I remember walking away saying, "Oh man, that was not my. That wasn't my bag." Yeah, didn't on, dig that at all. Is that on VHS? No, it may have even been on like. I don't want to say HBO because I don't think they were normally showing by that. But yeah, some kind something of, like maybe, that. You know, maybe IFC. It was probably. Yeah, it was probably, probably IFC. IFC yeah. yeah. Do you, do you remember if it was letterboxed? Because that, that would just absolutely murder it. Well, on IFC, I mean, I that my memory is yes. You know, it would have been letterboxed, right? It would have been the full. Yeah. They would have they would have made sure that I see it. But back then, we had thirty in, thirty two inch TVs. Yeah. Well, what I, difference would it made? Yeah, I sure you remember. Well, it made a difference. Yeah, no, right? it did. You're right. You're right. I mean, because yeah. we remember watching Lawrence of Arabia when the people are one and a half inches tall, that but at least sucked. we saw the whole wide screen on That's our thirty two inch tube TVs. But I do remember it going, eh, okay, I don't get it. Yeah. It must be great, and I'm just 
just dumb. I think it was just a, an excuse for Goodard to get Brigitte Bardot naked. I, Which you don't even need a good excuse, but if you can pull it off as a French filmmaker, well, you win. Well, he definitely won then. There you go. Band of Outsiders. A band apart as it is right. celebrated and known. And it is a great name. It's a great name for a production company mm-hmm. run by one of our favorite directors, Quentin right. Tarantino, who worships this film. And I have to tell you. Again. Yet again. Disappointed. Was in the narrative. Right. And wound up in the same place that. Uh, Viv Sav went and Breathless went. Had the same exact ending. Now, Band of Outsiders had other things in it that I really, really liked. Like, for instance, uh, there was a classroom scene about 20 minutes in, and Anna Karina is in this one as well. And he is very obviously using a fisheye lens mm-hmm. on a close-up. Now, this goes against every technical reason for use in cinema that you could ever come up with. You never use uh, fish eyes for close-up. You just use a standard lens. If you want to look at a room, then you pull the camera way back from your subject, and then you use the fish eye. So this, it was very much about breaking rules. Now, what he achieved with that very specific shot when uh, Anna Karina looks up and then opens her eyes was amazing. He made her look like a goddess. Right. It was shockingly um, alluring what he was doing. And uh, the fact that he um, probably didn't know what he was doing when he did it, and it came off so well, it was spectacular. I don't think anybody's done that before, and I haven't seen it since. And I I imagine that a band of outsiders, that was the point. Uh, kind of like those, those things that they were doing in contempt. Right. You know, but, I mean... The entire point of that, and I've got some more to go through, Pierre LeFou and Masculine Feminine, which I didn't finish. I couldn't finish. <laughs> but, you know, Pierre LeFou, it's it's like a great first hour. Belmondo, again, p- paired off with Anna Karina, leaves his wife to join the, the resistance right. of the Algerian. She's uh, the babysitter, right? Yeah. That's what I thought. Runs off with the babysitter to, and and they have a past, and uh, and they're gonna they're gonna join the resistance to stop the Algerian war. Goes nowhere fast. Again, the first hour great. The second hour, like, why are we hanging out on a beach? And it just it just seemed like oh, I got a great locale, but you know this this is what I wanted to bring up before because I I'd read this in in the two books that I read on Godard, which were both great books. Sometimes he'd wake up that morning and he would write the scene for that day. If he felt like it, and then they would they would shoot the scene, and if he felt like it changing it, he would just write another scene that replaced it the next morning, and then right. they would just shoot that, and he would just continue. You know, I understand you want to be experimental, and I want to I understand that you want to do things differently. You want to be very French, but for God's sakes, wouldn't the movie do better if you thought it all out beforehand? But that wasn't the point, right? And that doesn't make it better, of course. But that was the celebration of the French New Wave, right? Is doing, it's kind of like, it's, it's New York punk rock, right? They weren't necessarily outstanding musicians or putting out the best songs, but they were doing it their way. And that's kind of the allure of the New Wave, is that it's the punk rock of cinema. 
it, it, it's not that dissimilar from when, you know, we all got iPhones and that small handful of people started using the iPhone to make movies, even though we all had, get, had the capability, which then subsequently inspired a whole generation saying, wait, 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 I don't need a $50 million budget. I don't need to have a locked-in screenplay. I didn't need to have, you know, musical training to play three chords. It's That's kind of the reason we, not we, but those that do celebrate it. Right? I think that's right. And and that's really probably the point more than anything isn't necessarily that they're, quote, good, because the Sex Pistols weren't great. Nobody would ever claim that they were the best musicians or songwriters or anything else, but they were emblematic of a shift in the culture. And I think to a certain degree that the French New Wave drove entertainment for that, you know, subsection of society they do it away from the huge Hollywood spectacles. You went from, you know, HUD and Giant and other monumental. There wasn't a Cleopatra in the French New Wave. Everything was DIY. It's kind of like the Dogma 95 stuff, which I haven't watched really any of, but I know of it by reputation. It's kind of the next iteration of, you know, power to the people, which (laughs) when you go to the French, it makes a lot of sense, right? It's the French New Wave. It's the French Revolution. It's the democratization English. I speak it, although you wouldn't be able to tell from that word. And that was what was important. And I think that's why it's celebrated, and it is one of those where I found it fascinating that even though I've not delved near deep into it as I... If you take a look at um, the opening scene, not the opening scene, but the famous one shot in Mean Streets, it's kind of like the ultimate do-it-yourself. It's the ultimate new wave. It is like, I've got an idea... And I'm going to apply it. And the previous rules are not that critical to what I'm going to try to do. I get that. Um, Obviously, the French New Wave was highly influential. Um, I did an episode on The Graduate. Which which, you are not a fan of. Which I'm not a fan of. But, I mean, there's no arguing with the camera work in The Graduate. Mm -hmm. You know, Robert Surtees uh, shot it for uh, Mike Nichols. And the two of them created a a memorable film that we're still talking about. There's no argument against that. Right. Not necessarily have a one-to-one relationship with enjoyment. Unfortunately, I think that you're you're right. Um, I saw Hollow, Halloween Kills last night with my son. Again, not a fan. Not a fan of it. Uh, not a fan of the narrative. Uh, the film, as far as it was shot, constructed, and executed, uh couldn't get a more perfect film. Yeah, technically it was, speaking, it was it was amazing. Outstanding, but it was just like Planet Terror, you know. And, <laughs> and it was shot exactly to the point where about halfway through, I was thinking, "Is this a parody?" And it's it not. Make you wonder. It's shot exactly like you know any apex horror film from seventy-five to eighty-five. Very well done. Uh, to the point where you see. Anthony Michael Hall give a pot boiler speech. You think Anthony Michael Hall's in this movie? Anthony Michael Hall is in this. The geek is in this movie. I'll be darned. And he does a damn good job. Really? Yes. 
And now uh, I definitely want to see this. It's it's truly amazing. And there's a lot of other people. And in you don't like this movie? I yeah, for some <laughs> reason. And Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. Um, I've although, heard it's a very uh, underutilized role. It is. That's true. That's true. Uh, but I think that it was meant to be because they were going for a different feeling. Yeah, which, I guess they're going to title up in the third one. I don't know. That's 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 my understanding of it. All I can say is Jimmy Lee Curtis is was she in her late sixties, early seventies? Yeah, probably. And yeah. I'm, I mean, power to her. Yeah. You know, it's it's great that she's and she's a producer on this film and and uh, she's taking control and, and and forming a vision that she wants to form. So good for her. Just because I didn't like it, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Who gives a shit? Well. So back to um, the Godar. Okay. Um, Père LeFou, where I know your your son is here, so I'm going to try to keep this clean. He's paying no attention. Um, there's this amazing moment, and, and we should all remember this is this is 1965. Um, they're on a beach, uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo and Anna Karina, and there's a certain mood set. You know, it's at night. There's a moon out, and they're both being rather amorous and she basically rolls her head around in ecstasy mm-hmm. and basically says F me. Right. And I was well it was their romance. Well yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean flipping. I was uh, uh, other than being like shocked that they dropped the French F word in a film in 1965 which you could never get away with in America for I think it was another five years. Right. I was amazed at how well it fit within the structure of the film and fit within the it narrative of the film and fit within the characters. And that's, and again, when I say like that first hour, it was, it was completely solid. Unfortunately, the last hour, I just didn't think that he ever, like a lot of things, I think he's got a really good idea to start and he doesn't know where it's going to end. And, um, I just wish that he did. Did you get a chance to see Seaberg on HBO Max? No, I did not. Okay. I remember you recommend. Her background and the whole, you know, troubles with the FBI and her, if I recall correctly, wasn't there a smear campaign that she was pregnant by a, a Black Panther? A Black Panther not, leader? Not just, a, not just a Black Panther and a Black Panther leader. He was um, a member of the entourage that surrounded the widow of Malcolm X. Okay. So doesn't sound that important. He was not a, not a, not a Muslim if I remember correctly. Um, but well, you would think that if you're, if you're in the, the I think it's called the Muslim mosque incorporated was Malcolm right. X's organization. Well, so he had an entourage and it would surprise me if there were non-Muslims in that entourage. No, the shrug was pure. Like I literally have no idea. Yeah. But this was, this was after Malcolm X was, uh, had died. Yeah. yeah. And, the FBI obviously was watching him like a hawk, and he, she was cutting checks to his organization. And, the, and of course, this is one aspect of the Black Panthers a lot of people either don't know or don't care to know or, or, or are unfamiliar with. But they were actually, like, they were feeding more kids in California than the state of California was. The Black Panthers had a, had a child care program to take care of, of underprivileged, underprivileged kids. I mean, milk and honey and all the rest of it. And that's what she was paying for. 
Uh, now, whether all of the money was going that way, you know, I'm sure some was siphoned off for AK-47s or what have you. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm, I'm sure that the FBI was really concerned about was why is this Hollywood actress getting, you know, thousands of dollars? She was holding she was holding almost like uh, fundraising campaigns at her house in Beverly Hills. So the obviously the FBI was clamping down on that. And this is not the FBI of, of uh, Mindhunter. <laughs> no, yes. This is the this is the FBI of uh, J. Edgar, the right. Clint Eastwood movie. The political arm of right. the establishment, right. if you will. And it's also important to note that uh, this was not the, the normal side of the FBI that we're familiar with. This was actually uh, COINTELPRO, which was uh, the counterintelligence program that the FBI started to specifically fight the civil rights movement. And uh, after J. Edgar Hoover died, it was dismantled. And then Congress found out about it uh, later when all of this stuff came out. And by that time, unfortunately, uh, Ms. Seabird passed away. But they did, they did harass her and push she, her over the edge. She, commit, she, she committed suicide, suicide. Yeah. yeah. She wrapped herself in a carpet after swallowing a bottle full of pills in the backseat of her car, which she parked on the far side of Paris so that nobody would find her. That's a lot of effort. And it was, uh, it was nine days before her car was sighted. Um, you know, many times for, you know, you're parked in the wrong right. area and they're basically, they were coming to tow the car. They're going to put the boot on her and said, oh, wait. Yeah. And so they, they looked in the back seat and uh, something looked suspicious. So they called a cop and a cop came over and it, and it was her. And dead body. It was, crazy alarms. Yeah. It was, it was a very, unfortunately sad story. And, um, and, uh, you wouldn't think that something that would be possible. Vince Vaughn plays one of the FBI agents, um, okay. in this very effective role, um, which is another reason why you should see Seaberg. So this this enters a very interesting um, political dynamic of the film okay. uh, on screen as well as off screen. We all know that Vince Vaughn is a, a Republican. Yeah, he's a yeah, conservative. He's, yeah. He caught hell a couple of years ago for meeting and shaking hands with uh, President Trump. Yeah, none, of, none of all of that I, I give a shit yeah, about, right, right, but, right. He, but he is... He is. Uh, he's also made a film with Mel Gibson, so he's pegged as one of these people. Like, oh, and you'll work with. That's a good flick, by the way. At, uh, Hacksaw Ridge. No, I was thinking about Drive Across Concrete. No, I haven't seen that. Oh, good flick. Mel Gibson directed that. No, that was uh, Mel Gibson's in it, and it's directed by the guy who did uh, did Ride in Cell Block Thirteen and oh, Brawl and all that. Yeah. That is not allowed to exist. The reason I, that I, I bring that up is that he, he does this film in which he basically plays this, you know, right wing uh, FBI activist who's after this left wing uh, actor who's funding he, he the Black plays, Panther. He plays the nightmare that people pin. He does, yeah, and and uh, and he was really good at it. And so, of course, my I'm going to defend Vince Vaughn by saying I think that he knows perfectly well who he is and what he's doing. Oh, I would hope so. And, uh, and and I thought that was an interesting dynamic that that was brought into the film. Now, the other part of the film that was <laughs> that just kicked everything up a level was uh, his boss, J. Edgar Hoover, was played by Martin Sheen. That's funny. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And I have to say, Vince Vaughn and Martin Sheen, like, I can't tell. I, all I can say is, in front of the camera... They look like they got along famously. And who knows? I mean, it is one of those things where, you know, we're unfortunately supposed to have a very fractured relationship with those who do not believe the same things that we do. 
if those people are and are not in our echo chamber, we are not supposed to associate with them. But I have I have friends that you know are diametrically opposed to a lot of things that I believe in. But that doesn't change our fundamental relationship. Right. 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 So it could be very plausible that they, they are they got along famously on set. I mean, even half offset. I have no clue. And this is a sidetrack, of course, but you know this is why we should always bring up the outstanding career of Clint Eastwood. Oh, for sure. <laughs> okay. Who, uh, Richard Jewell, that has uh, Olivia. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, oh, 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 not Olivia Munn. It's, um, oh, yes. We, Wild. Yes, Olivia Wilde. Yes. Again, another famous progressive mm-hmm. uh, liberal. Very much. Right? Very much. Uh, Who is portrayed in that movie, from what I understand, is very much a victim of her own circumstances yes that's right but uh, why would you dare go work for clint eastwood as a director and yet people fall over themselves to to do it yeah he's up there with you know terrence malick and those people that i will take you know a reduced pay rate to work with legend and and it's one of those where we are supposed to separate art from the artist aren't we i think that we are i think that we can in most circumstances uh, we've cannot. covered. I, I think that I think that we can. I think we can too. But yeah. I think it's one of those things where he's he's a legend. Yeah. You know. I think we covered this on the on the first special report we where we talked about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. This person's a, actions versus their beliefs. Yeah, this is not necessarily breaking new ground in our conversations, but it is one of those where it matters. It does. It matters how we think. It matters how we feel. That's why we enjoy cinema. So Seberg. Oh, sorry. Yes. Um, we get digressed. Kristen Stewart plays Gene Seberg and I've got I got some feelings on Kristen Stewart that I want to share with you and the rest of our audience I'm all headphones and I just I just feel like I've been lied to for most of her career I've been told that she's not a good actress okay and a few years ago I saw a film which is now in the Criterion Collection called Personal Shopper. I've heard of it. I've not seen it. And I was fucking floored. And of course everybody remembers that she was in Panic Room and she was amazing in Panic Room and she had a, a bit part in Zathura which was pretty cool. Um, but then after those goddamn vampire movies came out. It kind it, of cratered her career. It, I don't know if her it, reputation. Her reputation right as an actress I think that it did and I think I, think I told you this uh, several years ago where I was listening to an interview with her over a podcast, and I wish I could remember what year. I think I was still living in Canada, so you're talking about six, seven years ago, I think, where they very much discussed this situation of you've got a reputation of basically you have one range, and that's it. And she had a very good point, which was um, that she was willing to bet that, you know, the great majority of people who have seen her on screen have seen her in only four films. Yeah, that's Playing one yeah. character, and... That's not a true representation of her range. No, but it is a true representation of what most people have seen. Been right. Exposed to. Right. So um, that's I mean, when I decided to give her a break. Well, I mean, who is the primary actor? Who is the, the, uh, the co-star? In Seberg? No, no, no. In the uh, vampire movies. Uh, Robert Pattinson. Yeah, it's the same type of deal, right? I yeah, mean, he was. Of, yeah, his he, career flagged greatly after I mean, you, that. You have, a, you have a similar thing with uh, Daniel Radcliffe, who has made a concerted effort since the Harry Potter movies to play counter to that role just to illustrate that he is more flexible than that. Playing against type. Yes. Just like 
Henry Fonda and Once Upon a Time in the West. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the reason I bring that up, and uh, after I heard that interview, I, I went to go see American Ultra with her and Jesse Eisenberg mm-hmm. with the wife, and we had an absolute fantabulous time. Just loved it greatly. Saw Personal Shopper, I guess, about three or four years ago. I think that's a 2018 film. And then, of course, um, right before the pandemic, Underwater came out. I think it was January of, of mm-hmm. 2020. Underwater came out, and I remember seeing the enormous poster of of her, and I was thinking, you know, this is probably a kaiju movie. Count me in. I mean, there. when do they go wrong, really? And my son was like, no, I'm not. You're not dragging me to a Christian Stewart underwater movie. No, I refuse to go. So I'm like, all right, fine. So it, it hit HBO Max and the, 90 days later, and I'm watching it on my you know 70-inch TV in my bedroom. Could not fucking believe how good it was. Just utterly shocked at like, it. It has no business being oh this my, good. It's, a, it's basically a remake of uh, Alien, which is a remake of Jaws, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it carries that same, right. you know, um, bad guy does not show up until the third real type of moment. And it just had real cinematic reveal to it. And as I was watching, I was like, fuck, I wish I saw this on the big screen. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd seen this on the big screen. So my birthday is next year. I think I'm going to going to rent out a theater again, and we're going to watch Underwater. That's really a strange choice. It's are, not a bad choice. Don't get me wrong. It's are just, you in? Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> for sure. But it's like that's such an unexpected statement. That's how much I really enjoyed it. I, I almost watched it again right after I finished it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely need to check it out. I have seen it on the uh, queue. I think I've actually, I don't know if I've put it in the uh, checkmark queue well, or not. You just have a few months to go. Don't watch it now. Because you're going to see it on the big screen. True. I'm now looking forward to it. Yeah. So that's where I wanted to go with uh, Kristen okay. Stewart. She got she has Spencer coming out here next week or something. It's She's playing uh, Princess Diana. Oh, 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 and, oh, oh, yes, I have heard of this. Oh, yeah. okay. And I was it, totally blanking initially. Yeah, yeah and she, she apparently is r- ranking up the yeah. the awards over at the, in the European circuit. Okay. Okay. There's one thing I want to go into okay. be- before, we, before we go into Letterboxd, and that is the, the great tragedy that is our dividing difference on Tenet. Okay. Please, sir, tell us why you did not like it. I interrupt this podcast to bring you something just a little bit more soothing to the ear to listen to rather than the 747 that was then flying over Dave's house at the time heading towards IH. That pretty much broke up and destroyed the entire conversation in which he explained to me why he so decidedly disliked Tenet. However, I think that if you're listening to my podcasts, you've listened to tens of other podcasts about why people hate Tenet, or you've gone on and you've done your research to find out why you hate Tenet. And I think that uh, Dave's reasons pretty much line up with those. So I'm going to skip that. I'm going to wait for the plane to pass, and then I'm going to throw you back in the water. Okay, thanks. I am ill-prepared to relive. That's all right. I mean, I think that the this has already been hashed out on a thousand podcasts oh, sure. since it yeah. came out. Yeah, we're um, not breaking new ground. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's a couple of technical points that I think uh, a lot of people are 
the casual listener may not be aware of, and one of those is the bouncing down of the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. If you've got, um, you know, 72-track master, and you have a theater that has a 16-track stereo system, you've got to bounce those track downs, and you've got four tracks on one track, and then you just keep diluting the quality of the soundtrack until all of a sudden you can't understand the fucking word that may be saying on right. screen. That was that was definitely the problem in my theater, at the Cinemark that I was at. Um, I talked to somebody who went to the one at Dunvale, mm-hmm. and he said it was crystal clear. Okay. Now, that's also, if I remember correctly, that's a Cinemark. So, why those two are different, uh, that just pisses me off. I know that I, I saw Frozen at a, at a uh, Cineplex Odeon in Canada. And the theater that I was in um, had horrible sound. Right. And they got into the whole Let It Go sequence. And they ended the song on the whole popular, you know, um, uh, The Cold Never Bothered Me Anyway. Dunt. Big finale. Big moment. And I looked at the screen thinking, this is an enormous Disney moment. Mm-hmm. Why am I not feeling it? And it was because of the sound in the theater. Yeah, the presentation. I mean, we've we've all been there where in the in the theaters that if someone has something poorly tuned, it may has a significant impact. It's always it's always been um, you know, this is why Lucas started the THX certification yes. system. Yes. It's always been a problem. Um, I don't know if it's ever gonna go away. Um, oh god no. The only thing that'll make it go away is the theaters going away. Which we don't want that. No, we don't want that so at all. We'd be fine with problematic cinemas, as I, long as we have cinemas. I think so. I was trying to explain to my son some of the shit that I'd seen. We were still watching film. Oh, you would totally be okay with the flaws inherent with the medium. I would be okay with the flaws inherent in film? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the cigarette burns, the scratches, the... Lines that would run through an entire reel where you're like, oh, man, that hair is annoying as shit. Or the reel that would not sync properly right. to the next reel. You're okay or with that. My favorite one is, you know, my wife and I were watching um, Snake Eyes. <laughs> and Good movie. There's, uh, there's that scene where Gary Sinise just unveils the entire plot mm-hmm. in about three and a half minutes. And so this is the reason why I did this. And then the, the reel snapped. It snapped while we were watching it. The screen went white. And there were 400 of us going, what, what the... What is going on? You didn't, and, and they couldn't bring it back up. They uh, is this part of it? It was me, you magnificent bastard. Yeah, I mean, it was ten minutes, and I yeah. don't know how they did it. And I guess I get. I'm thinking now, thinking back, and I can't prove this. They grabbed another reel from another eh. theater, and they just decided, well, we're just not going to run uh, run it in that that theater until they can replace this reel, and then they kicked Seems it back reasonable. on. Yeah. But then to try to sync that with the sound and restart it, I was in. What about Bob and? Uh, not only uh, the film melted right in front of our eyes, right when uh, Bill Murray was being uh, roped to the masthead by uh, Richard Dreyfuss, and they're going out in the harbor, and we never saw the rest of the film. And there were there were, the theater was about half packed. Then I was with my dad and his girlfriend, and I will never forget uh, the guy coming in and saying, "Guys, we're so sorry. The film melted. We cannot respool it. We will all give you your money back." And you just heard the audience going, "Oh Jesus, really?" And then this one dude in the back bless this master of words stood up and said but sir what about bob (laughs) 
you know, who knows? Now I understand um, I've got a relative that works at a movie theater. Uh, all the digital projectors are in all of the theaters are synced to a central system, and they are all hooked up to Wi-Fi. Right. And it downloads everything, shows it at a certain time, and the theaters now have very little say about what is shown and what time it is. I swear to Christ, if I ever find the guy who was flying that Buddy Holly Cessna right over his house at this point in time, I'll kill him. And they showed the opening credits in the appropriate framing. And then after the credits, they switched it to the aspect ratio. Yeah, it was like, that was like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. The DVD in my collection that was 20 years old had better resolution, yeah. too. Yeah. It, was, it was just one of those where, you know, I, I would like to think, and I know it's not true, that when it was filmed, people cared more and they worked harder. And I know that's not true, but it, well, let me just live in my little romance period. <laughs> okay. But I am stoked about the idea of seeing underwater in the theater, especially after your, frankly, rave review. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. T.J. Miller's in it, too. What about that guy? <laughs> I don't know if I like him or not. Uh, I like him when I don't have to think about him. I don't know enough about I know, I know there's some sort of controversy associated with him being a total asshole. I, but I don't know what that is. But it was one of those that, independent of any of those primary concerns with his character... That every time he's been in a movie, I've been like, I don't know about that guy. Maybe that's kind of funny. I'm not sure. So. Well, he was in Ready Player One. Yeah, it didn't do much for me. I remember the only thing I've actually ever liked him in tremendously was, uh, oh gosh, what was the HBO show? Um, Silicon Valley. Oh, I never saw that. Yeah, you know, he was really, like really good at that. But everything else, everything I've ever seen him in is like, going, I don't have much use for this guy. Is that the one? I think I've seen a clip of this. Is that uh-huh. the one where... T.J. Miller and like there's a room full of guys and it looks like there's one guy from India or something or his yes, parents are, probably about right. and, yeah. they're, and they're trying to figure out how many hand jobs they could give I, I, and they create like right. a mathematical equation yeah. if you right. do two hand jobs at a time. Yeah, it sounds about right. That's probably it. It probably is. I saw Montage of Heck. Oh, the uh, movie about Kirk Cobain. Yeah. Okay. Have you seen it? I have not, but I see. I noticed your Nirvana shirt. Oh, yeah, I just happen to be wearing it today. Yeah. Um, it, that's for guys of our generation. Is that, is that Gus Van Zandt? No, he, he did a film called The Last okay, Days, so, okay. which was, it might as well have been a film about Kurt. Well, I mean, isn't it one of those where it was, but they just didn't call him that? They didn't call him that because they wanted to um, do things with the character that uh, they didn't want to pin on Kurt. Okay. But it was... The last day. Marty didn't care when he did a Last Temptation of Christ, but okay. Yeah, that's I mean, right. it's good enough for Jesus. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Should be good enough, for Kurt. I would think so. Kurt would probably agree with that. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and it, it went from the um, I'm you know I'm extraordinarily impressed by what he did to mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, man, really. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, my kid is 17, and he's got more sense than Kurt did at 24 or something. Yeah, I mean, kid was a. He was messed up. He was a shockingly talented songwriter who was a shockingly incompetent human. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it, yeah. Some of the best parts or the highlights, you will, is they actually got 
Chris Novoselic, love, okay. um, to do some interviews. I'm not saying the same room. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, Dave Grohl is the one that won't. He wouldn't participate in it. He won't participate in any, any Cobain documentary, although you you probably know that they're, the 30th anniversary of Nevermind is here, and they're thinking about changing the cover because the the kid is is upset. Uh, that's that such a big... Oh, God, don't get me started. I won't. I just thought I'd bring that up for a But fans. 30 years? Now I'm really <laughs> fucking depressed. <laughs> I'm really distressed. Uh, Woodstock 99. I, I do want to see this. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. Um, it's on HBO Max. Now, who played Woodstock 99? Limp Biscuit played. Yes. Fred Durst, by the way, is the the guy who famously went on stage at Woodstock 99 and said... Oh, that was also just the one Metallica. Burn it down. Yeah, yeah. Metallica was there. Metallica yeah. was there. Dave Matthews' band was there. Was there. But, uh... I've got this, I've got this soft spot for, um... Limp Biscuit. Really? I think West Borland is a remarkably phenomenal guitarist and a fascinating human. Fascinating human? Please explain. There's a show on um, one of the, quote, reality shows where he is rebuilding a house with his wife in Detroit. He also forges knives and axes and things. He is a He's like Nick Offerman of the new metal world. And I find this fascinating. But is this kind of like finding out like Vanilla Ice is a renovation expert? No, because I think this is authentic. I think actually he's an interesting cat, and I think it's one of those things where he does it because this is what he wants to do, and for whatever reason he ended up on a show. Whereas I think Vanilla Ice is making a desperate attempt to stay relevant. Oh. And I, I think that West Borland is a quirky, quirky dude who dresses up in gold paint or silver laminate because that's like what he wants to do, not because that's like what he thinks will make him popular. It's like this makes me comfortable. And it's like. You are a weird cat, man. I want to hang out with you and have a beer and say, what's going on? So there's this thing where I think Fred Durst is a lunkhead and has nothing to say to anybody, much less anyone in his generation, even much less anyone at Woodstock 99. But if Wes Borland showed up, they'd be like, oh, I'm paying attention to what you have to say because I think you're an interesting cat. Could be. So that's just one of those things where I, f- I find this dichotomy of like, Limp Bizkit, I've always thought, I mean, almost from, what was their first record that got popular? I uh, am not a Limp Bizkit fan. I, I'm not I either. cannot tell you. But it's, it was I don't know those, any of their songs. That's actually not true. It, that, that is very true. I don't know any of their songs. Oh. If you played any of them for me right now, I couldn't tell you. Oh, I, 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 I bet they're, you They're wrong. about as irrelevant to me as Taylor Swift. No, no, I, I, you're wrong. <laughs> I guarantee you, you're wrong. I will play some after the podcast, and you'll say, oh, that band. Okay, I got this. But it's one of those where I've always found the music intriguing. Like, everything else associated with the lyrics and whatnot is crap, but the music I've always found, like, inherently fascinating. Okay. He did it all for the nookie. <laughs> I've heard that a million times. <laughs> that's that's bad. Yeah, not that, not that song. I've just heard, yeah. I've heard that title. Yeah, yeah, okay. We're playing it afterwards. Okay. You're welcome. So back to Woodstock '99. Mm. Uh, there's there's too much to go into into that, but um, that's why you want to, yes. Go on, go on. Well, that's why you, I want you to to watch the documentary. It's, mm-hmm. It goes delves into a number of different issues. I, I did see your letterbox review. Though. You did. I did. Yeah. And I, I know it was uh, it was produced by Bill Simmons. Yeah. And I heard a podcast that he was hosting regarding it. Yeah. And I don't know if I totally buy the narrative. That's that's why I watched it. Actually, is because they brought it up on 
on the Big Picture podcast. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I, I have to see this. There, there were a lot of things that I, I like. I'm, I'm not too sure about. Like, uh, they, they brought it up. Uh, you know, at the end of Woodstock '99, they said, you know, we started off the decade with Kurt Cobain coming on mm-hmm. stage in a dress and saying, if you got a problem with this, then you need to go in a corner and think about your life. Right. And then they ended in the decade um, Which did, with an enormous misogynistic, you know, concert event um, that. Managed to hurt a lot of people. And, yeah, it devolved and, into a disaster. Right, and for sure. My, it's not my, like the original Woodstock was all pieces. pieces well, they of go into that too. They, you know, nobody remembers they had to call in the goddamn U.S. Army, uh, who was the most hated people in the counterculture, right. to come in and, and save. It was definitely the best thing these to people do at right? the time. Yeah, and my favorite quote is from Moby, who I didn't even know was there. I didn't know that either. <laughs> but Moby was like, it's. It's like whatever whatever mixture was going on like fed the the worst aspects of this troglodyte culture. So I had to fucking pull out my phone and go to wiktionary.org and then look up troglodyte, which is basically like you know the word. Well, you're you're way the fuck ahead of me. I had to, I had to pause it and look it up. It was it's like, leave it the fucking movie to come up with the word troglodyte and use it in a sentence. Yeah, the vegan. You know? It is one of those where, you know, the, that's the thing, though. I don't know if it – maybe I'm totally wrong, and I probably am, frankly. But it is one of those where I've heard that brought up a lot, where it's like, okay, the only people that were at this concert were, you know, frat boys and lunkheads and misogynistic pigs, and it devolved in a way that it was oh so predictable if only we'd have paid attention. I don't think that it was predictable. Well, it is unfortunately. Well, well, when you have someone whatever. like Moby saying they're a bunch of troglodytes, yeah. Then if you're not if you're not predicting this will happen, then you are, you know, intellectually dishonest at the best, right? So I, I don't know if I believe that. I might be totally wrong. I may be kidding myself to make myself feel better, frankly. But it is one of those where I think it was a bad circumstance, and it was the nascent beginning of the internet era where we found out about everything terrible instantaneously and i'm not trying to excuse any of the behavior because that's not what i'm doing at all but it's just one of those where it's like this shit happens all the fucking time and happened back then as you were saying with the u.s army coming in thought that that were 100 percent true I think things would be worse because you know the three hundred thousand fucking people there. Like if if they that's were all lot, that way, that's a lot, that's a lot of I mean that's that's like some major cities. That's like thirty army divisions yeah. where the people like so I I don't think that it was a complete disaster. But I don't think that every single person was misbehaving, characterizing, right? or even the majority. So there was enough that were that were paying attention to the rules that it wasn't a complete catastrophe. However. The situation as it was set up by the by the founders of the event was, was not helpful. No. Regardless of that, I wanted to go into my personal oh, story. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Which is, uh, you know, I was, I was, we were, we were in college at the time, yes. if I remember, and I came home from uh, work Friday night, and I guess it was about nine o'clock at night. I wasn't in college anymore. I just you, graduated. You just graduated. I was still in college for another year. I turned on the, the TV, and. Uh, was it a big the, bunch of what there the was, going on? Well, there was an MTV. <laughs> there was an MTV report. Was Kurt Loder freaking out? It, I don't know if it was Kurt Loder or that guy uh, Norris. Oh yeah, yeah. I can't remember his first or last name, but 
uh, whoever it was. Norris was one of them, though. Norris was one of them. Yeah, he had kind of he yeah. had the separated teeth and the short brown <laughs> and, hair. Yeah, and he was losing his hair. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally remember that guy. You know, his name would come to me later. But, but He was a lesser Dennis Miller. But it was basically like, hey, there, it's hot and there's a shortage of water. And I was like, oh, wow, that's that's not good. This is Friday. <laughs> 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 so then uh, I woke up the, the next morning and I watched uh, I watched a concert because mm-hmm. uh, they, they were feeding it live. So I watched whoever it was. I don't even remember. And then I went to work. And um, like everybody else, I listened to Z-Rock all day. And then I came in at 9 or 10 o'clock that night. And I turned on MTV News, and it was like, um, there's dozens of people in the hospital. Um, shit is going south fast. And uh, and, and a, couple a, bad of, scene. a couple of people have died from dehydration. And I remember thinking, Jesus Christ, like, this is... This is not good. And I understood even at the time, like, this was in a controlled area as opposed Mm -hmm. to Woodstock 94, which was, like, held in an open field with, like, movable fences. Like, of course, that was going to go just as far south. That was the Mudstock. Yes. If you remember correctly. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Which was also a disaster, but nobody died. Nobody died. It's much more fondly remembered. Yeah. Because, you know, Trent Reznor being covered in mud is a much better scene. Well, that was basically Lollapalooza. That was the alternative. Yeah. Scene in, in 94. Uh, I was in high school at the time or had just graduated, and I remember that going on. And, and was and that band was on tour, that whole group was on tour that summer, mm. and that was just what they called that weekend event. Lollapalooza came to Houston. Yeah. Um, did you did you make it? No, uh, we had a friend that made it that made it and, and saw Nirvana, okay, and got fired because he told Kurt Cobain he, he sucked at playing guitar. And he might have. He, he might have. <laughs> <laughs> Technically speaking, yes, things circle back to Kurt continuously. Anyway, so so I'm like, oh man, this is this is not good. So once again, I I went to sleep. I woke up. I I woke up early so I could catch uh, a concert uh, that was being live fed out of uh, out of New York. And then I went to work. And then when I came back that night, again, like 9 or 10 o'clock at night. This is on uh, Sunday night. Then, then, it, then it was like total chaos. Like shit was on fire. Right. People were very pissed off at Fred Durst. Like things were things were bad. More people were dead. And I just thought. <laughs> more people. What a statement. Like, well, more people, people dead. Like what, what the hell happened? And uh, obviously there's got to be some more front end organizing. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason there hasn't been one since. Well, they tried. A couple of years ago, they, they did. They did try. And They're going to run two of them concurrently. Oh Jesus! Okay, no sudden move. Steven Soderbergh, HBO Max. Oh, is it the Don Cheadle flick? Yes. Shit, I haven't seen it. Uh, cut this whole two words. Out. Brendan Fraser. I've heard he's in that. You've got to see it just for him. Uh, no, no, I, I want to see it. Um, the man is rebuilding his life. He's rebuilding his career. His life. Re- What's wrong with his life? Uh, what happened? What happened to Brendan Fraser? Well, as I understand it, um, he suffered a series of health events okay. that were directly related to his stunt work in several different films. Okay, and it all just sort of came across right in the span of two years. Okay, everything. So he was not able to act, and then he was on an enormous amount of medication. Mm-hmm. So when he was doing public events or when he was trying to audience test, it was not helping him out. No, the he only thing I remember, came across as an addict. Yeah, the, the only thing I really remember is, yeah, like, he was, it was a bad look, right? He yeah. showed up on something and was like, 
Oh wow, that guy is. He looked pretty bad when looked when Tom bad. Cruise did the Mummy. He went on to KTLA and he mm-hmm. wanted to push the Mummy. He looked like shit. He looked like he was on something. And as it turns out, both were true. Um, but it looks like uh, fighting and fighting and fighting has paid off. Oh, good friend. <clears throat> He's got his life back together. Phenomenal. And uh, and I loved uh, every minute of him in No Sudden Moving. I wish him well. No, I, I do want to see that though. Sorry. That's okay. Perverse guide to ideology. Yeah, I'm starting to like. Okay, you've got you've got to see this. The perverts guide to ideology. Yes, by Slavoj Zizek. Never heard of him. That's okay because I never had either until I saw this documentary called The Perverts Guide to Ideology. Or as Zizek says, he says ideology. Okay, so Zizek is this. Uh, I'm, I'm not kidding. Just he, or he is no. He's he's, he's Yugoslavian. Okay. Oh, so wow. he was he was born in Yugoslavia. I, I don't know. Remember which state? Could have been Serbia, Croatia, whatever. It didn't matter. Uh, I'll cut that out. <laughs> I I don't remember what state Yugoslavia is from, but he is he is a dyed in the wool communist. Okay. He grew up in communism. They sent him to school to study communism. He's a communist theologist, and he works that into... A communist theologist. Uh, yes. I thought that was like Not counter- theologist. That's counterproductive. Okay. Ideologist? Okay. okay. Yeah. And Communism is his religion. I would say so. He is trying yeah. to convert the masses. I don't know if he's trying to convert them, but he's definitely under the impression that it is the way to go, despite it being a failure in so many countries. Um, Regardless. One. He, he's written several books on film. And so he did this documentary. Um, I don't remember who directed it, but he, he is basically the subject of it. And it is called The Pervert's Guide to Etiology. And he talks about They Live and The Sound of Music and um, got a number of different films, Taxi Driver. And it is highly entertaining. He, okay. only, loses, he only loses you for about 15 minutes. But, for, for example, he is explaining to you the mindset of Travis Bickle. And while he's doing that, you'll notice in the background that he's in Travis Bickle's apartment. And I do not fucking know how they did it. I do not know. It opens with, uh, with They Live, with the fight scene in the, mm-hmm. in the alleyway and They Live. And he, start, he starts talking about how uh, They Live is like this very underappreciated film about capitalism, which we all know to be true. I was about to say, very right? So and, is it underappreciated if everybody knows this? <laughs> fair. Fair Come enough. On. And then if you if you look closely behind Zizek, it's like the dumpster in They Live. So he's right in the alleyway, right? I don't know how they did it. And it does not look like a blue screen. Uh, but he uses it for punchlines. Like in The Sound of Music, he's in like the uh, the nun's study where they've got the, you know, that climb high every mountain or whatever. Um, the Julie Andrews right, moment, right, right. right? So <laughs> if you get a chance, you need to see that. Now, that, I, think, I think that's on uh, Mubi, Movie. Whatever I know app. what movie is. Yeah. yeah. What else is on movie is State Funeral. I don't know if you heard about this, mm-hmm. but I heard a podcast with two historians talking about this. I'm trying to remember the podcast. I think it was uh, the Cold War Guide to History. And what this is is apparently this guy wanted to make a documentary about Joseph Stalin's funeral. Okay. Wrote a very long review on it. And he, uh, this filmmaker, went to Moscow to look into the archives 
the archives on Stalin's funeral were open, and he was absolutely shocked about what he found. And it, it uh, changed his view on what he wanted to show. And so the, the entire documentary is all contemporary footage. There is no commentary. There is no narrative. It's just, There's no one telling you what to think. Just AV. It is just AV. And uh, it is cut together in a way uh, that is really quite shocking. And I was astounded at the amount of color film. Really rich color film. And you know it's not Technicolor. Right. It is some other chemical process that the Russians invented for themselves. And um, how the Soviet people are running through all of their uh, emotional ranges and dealing with the death of their leader. Very different than what we go through. Who was the last president to pass away? Reagan? George H.W. Bush. Yeah, George H.W. Bush. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember anybody crying when he passed. Like, I know his family members cried. No, don't get no, me wrong. I mean, but as far as, like, the, the masses. Yeah. But, I mean, also, I mean, I don't, they didn't react that way when, well, did Gorbachev pass away yet? Or no, he's still alive. Okay, what about a... Uh, no, that's probably the most famous one I could The think last of. Soviet leader to pass away before Gorbachev was, uh, well, he replaced a guy who died in office and drop off. Okay, well, I'm trying to think. I mean, Stalin, in my mind, is similar in a cult of personality regard to, you know, Kennedy. Oh, yes. Which we haven't really had a dynamic, you know, really charismatic leader in this country. Probably, well, there was Reagan, of course. And to a certain degree, Nixon and Clinton. Well, I was about to say, like, I, I was going on this route, but I may have just contradicted myself. My mother cried when Nixon died. But it's not because she was, like, this enormous Nixon fan. Right. But Nixon had always been there. You know, Nixon was an elected official when she was a child. He was a vice president right. when she was in high school. Um, she, you know, she had a, a, a cousin of hers who went to Vietnam. Um so she remembers been, the. She'd always been there. So he's always been part of her life. Yeah, for I mean, for about twenty years, and, and and he was only absent for about fifteen before he passed away. So she, I just remember her th saying like, "Oh my God, you know, the, the history of my life was so tied up into Nixon's." Right. And it was more along the lines of that. It wasn't like she had any passion right. for the man right. himself. Yeah, I know what you meant. Yeah. You know. Um, well, it's one of those. That, that's what I was trying to get at. I think is that right now our our. our uh, political leaders are not so emotionally connected well at least not to me right no, I, I think that you're right I, I, think it's, I, mean, I think I, it's I been a long that, time since we had someone that we emotionally connected to well, it might have been I, Reagan you and might. I specifically right I oh mean, yeah there's certainly people that when Obama passes that will completely lose their brain and to me I'll say well that, that sucks that sucks you know yeah but I, I don't know I mean that's an interesting point though and I don't know if that we're better or worse for it yeah, I don't know either, and I also I don't know. Um, I tend to think we're better for it. I don't know how that's changed over time. Like obviously, when you have an upsetting event, uh, people go crazy, and I don't just mean Kennedy, but you know when Lincoln was assassinated. I well, mean that that was total fucking chaos in this well, country. Yeah, yeah, but I mean you think of nine eleven. I mean, yeah. I mean these are legitimately emotionally impactful events that even though I was, it didn't affect me at all, it affected me significantly. Yeah, it affected all of us for yeah. 20 years, yeah. But it was one of those, that in the moment. You know how many people I knew in New York City at that time? Zero. Literally none. Yeah. That end, there is a 9-11 documentary on Hulu 
It's yeah, several parts. That. It's it's just, it's outstanding. Yeah, but I'm not watching it. It's outstanding. You should watch it. I understand why. why you, I understand why you don't, but you should. Why? Watch. Why should I watch it? I'm not forgetting about it. Well, it's one of those where I don't need to be reminded of it. Right? I don't know what it could offer me that makes it... That you don't already know. Well, no, no. That that I don't already want to know. Yeah. I mean, the more information I get, is it going to make me more well-connected to it? Am I going to get some kind of sympathy for the attackers? Not something I want. Documentaries about the Japanese side of World or of uh, Pearl Harbor? Uh, no. That's fair. That's fair. That's no. That's that's good. Why do you want to relive that trauma? Right. I mean, I, it's I, like my grandfather not talking about the war. Yeah. It's like what's 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 the benefit? Okay. Framing John Delorean. I know you saw that. Yeah. I know you're impressed by it. I was. More so than. Um, so there's two there's two documentaries it's, yeah, on it's, it's the Deep Impact Armageddon of John Lawrence <laughs> documentaries. <laughs> the other one with uh, with Alec Baldwin, uh, you know, I liked that one. It was fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, framing John DeLorean was, it just put things in in a completely different way. Um, how does a man walk into a hotel room with no money and no coke, walk out of the hotel room with no money and no coke, and then all of a sudden he's convicted of, or or he's being arrested for, for committing a crime? I don't. I don't really get it. He did not walk into the hotel room intending to buy a cocaine, and he did not walk into the hotel room intending to sell cocaine. So how can he be uh, charged with, with trafficking? That that was the astounding thing to me. Now, there there were a couple of other things that they discovered in his past that did not paint John DeLore in a particularly very good light. Right. Uh, there's a catalytic technology from the early 70s, um, which apparently screwed somebody over on. And then there was a, a shell company... Um, connected to the DeLorean Motor Company that he used to launder some cash. And that seems to be some uh, pretty despicable white-collar stuff. Uh, Not moving narcotics. Obviously, I watch way more movies than you. What? And I'm very impressed by it. How do you pull this off? I don't... don't, Do you think that I... You think I watch a lot of films? I mean, I I probably watch... You objectively watch a lot of films. I probably watch... What would you, what's your, okay, so there's 365 in a year. Yeah. How many movies do you watch in a year? Well, if I were to spend enough time on Letterboxd, I'm, I'm probably sure there's a metric that will, would help right. me figure that out. It's but, definitely more than one a day. Um, well, no. On average. I, I can't, no, I can't, I can't say that to be true. It's, if well, I were doing one a day, I'd, I probably, I probably see four a week. And you know, last last weekend was uh, what Labor Day weekend or whatever it was. Ten on August twenty second. <laughs> yeah, but what what were they? They were probably like one hour movies. They like, very oh. well might be. Okay, so that's ten hours of video. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, so I was on. So my thing that I do now is that since I'm on the Criterion channel, is I go to that little um, that spot on the Criterion feed that says. These movies are leaving this month. Right, so you burn through them. Yeah, I just try to watch as many as possible. And I do know that there was that one day where it was they were dropping a shitload of uh, Chaplin films. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of some of those are only two and three reels. So that was no problem at all. It's still 30 minutes. You know, it is, yeah. Um, but there was also some Jenny Olsen stuff. 
Jenny Olson is a filmmaker in San Francisco, and she did um, she did uh, some very interesting uh, films. She did my favorite one was called uh, I think it was called Seven Five Seven Castro Street, which is the uh, the location of Harvey Milk's uh, camera company mm-hmm. um, before he was elected as well. I, I think he still owned it when he was elected as a supervisor for the the city of uh, San Francisco, and um, it had been refurbished by Gus Van Zant for the film Milk. And they let her in there. The filmmakers, I guess, Gus Van Zant let her in there with uh, a film crew, and she filmed it. And she overlaid a recording of Milk talking about his own assassination and what should happen after he was murdered. And it was eerily creepy. It was very disturbing, and it was highly effective. Uh, I just, just where even where she was putting the camera on film cases and camera cases and everything. It was just very, very unsettling. And mm-hmm. I think that was the whole point. She also did one on, um, and that was only, I, I don't know, that was like 15 minutes. She did another one on San Francisco about the, the Golden Gate Bridge and about people uh, jumping off and then about uh, people following love. And I didn't so much uh, enjoy that one. Like I, I enjoyed uh, the photography was, was beautiful, of course. And what she, what she had to say about suicide was, like, shocking. Like, I didn't realize that the Golden Gate Bridge was, like, the focal point of suicide in the United States. More people take their lives there than anywhere else in, in the country. And they couldn't get the Golden Gate Bridge to put up a barrier of any kind. They said it would mess with the aesthetics. And we're talking, like, uh, like 400 people a year or something kill themselves off, the, off that bridge. Right. It's, it's insane. So, so that, well, was a, that was only that an, an hour. An inter- that brings up an interesting question. Should they put up a barrier? In order to save people's lives, yes. You like, think it's so, going to save their lives? Yeah, I do. Do you think it's going to save their lives? Do you think it's going to the, save their lives at that point? That uh, so that was that was the excuse. They said people who would take their lives are going to take. Anyway. They're going to do it anyway, and that wound up not being true. They quoted a study uh, that said that if you save a person's life the the quote unquote the first time, uh-huh. right, uh, they are uh, more unlikely. To follow through on the suicide mm. for, for the rest of their natural life. Like they die of natural causes or something else. Sure. It's, well, that's the study that they cited. I, 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 I'm not doubting that study exists. We're getting off topic. We are getting off topic. We're I watch getting, a lot of movies. You, you, got, you watch a lot of flicks. And I'm very impressed. It's, it's one of those things where I, I'm... I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm jealous, but I'm definitely impressed. I'm gonna. You start off with one that you see a mine that you're curious about. Oh, let's go with. You gave three and a half stars, which is lower than I expected for Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Undiscovered Country, <laughs> which is it's an even Star Trek number, you know, movie, and it's actually a, my recollection is this is it's a pretty darn good one. Actually, it, my. My recollection, right, which is quite a few years old, right, is that in the Pantheon, especially the original cast, is this number two and it's number six, and then it's probably four, three, one, five. So if I put number two at five stars relative to all the other Star Trek movies, I would put, you know, the Undiscovered Country at probably four, four and a half. So my recollection is that it was excellent, and yours putting it three, three and a half, and then you were talking about in your review, 
how you it was much better on your rewatch. Yeah. And you still only gave it three and a half. Yeah. Which I know this is really, you know, inconsequential on your feelings of the sixth Star Trek movie. But, you know, it's lower than I anticipated. Uh, first of all, I'd, I'd like to... I'd like to thank you for bringing this up since we're, we're still within, I think, 48 hours of, of William Shatner going into outer space. And uh, I don't like Jeff Bezos or a lot of the things that he says or does, but I would like to thank him for making that a reality. Why do you not like Jeff Bezos? Well, there's, there's a long list of things that we can talk about okay, um, off this podcast. This is a joke. Um, I want my packages to show up on time. They do. But... <clears throat> um, not in the U.S. mail anymore, apparently, which is not Amazon, I understand. Right. I mean, you're talking about something yeah. that's completely independent yeah. of Apples that. and oranges. Okay. So, The Undiscovered Country, I mean, I liked it. Don't get me wrong. I just... Uh, no, no. I, think, I didn't get the impression you didn't. Uh, I think Shatner... It's not a four-star film. It's not... Like, a four-star film to me is just... There's no argument. This is a good film. This this is... Well, that's, I, I guess that's kind of where I'm going is I, I thought that most... Individuals considered Star Trek sex. I can't believe we're having this conversation. I, I think I think most do. I think yeah. that you're right on that. I just don't, and I don't know if it's. I mean, Shatner's directing is is okay. Is it's it, not. It's not Nicholas Meyer. Is it not enough? It's not Shakespeare from not the Klingons. Literary. Well, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> okay. I love Christopher Plummer. Yeah, he is phenomenal. As, he is yeah. phenomenal, and a lot of people don't know this. Did you know that? Um, you know how they found uh, William Shatner. He was Christopher Plummer's understudy in a Shakespeare play in Quebec City in 1958. Of all the things I knew, that was not and, one of them. And they called Christopher Plummer to Hollywood, and he got up and left. And they called that, so William Shatner had to fill his role in that play. And that worked out. So everybody in Quebec City was like, "Who is this guy playing?" I think it was King Lear. No, they didn't say that. They said, "Who is this?" They, they said, "Who is this guy <laughs> <laughs> playing King Lear?" <laughs> Gone. But that's how they discovered William Shatner is he replaced Christopher Plummer. Okay. So Nicholas Meyer knew this. Mm -hmm. he, and uh, I remember seeing an interview. I think we've discussed this before. I saw an interview with uh, William Shatner in the late 90s, and they were talking about uh, Star Trek. And they said, well, you know, what's up with all the dramatic pauses and what's up with all this, like, feeling and fists and everything? Yeah, it's very you know. Very and dramatic. Shatner brought up a very good point. It's like, dude, in the 60s, like, everything was made out of cardboard. Yeah. The, the the set shook when the doors closed. Like it, this was ludicrous, and you had to sell it. It made sense. It, yeah, <laughs> you had to sell it, and you had to sell it hard. And if that meant that you were being over dramatic, then great. You know, I think it's the third or fourth episode in the original series. Like Shatner's walking around with no shirt for like half the episode because <laughs> they just got out of order replacement. <laughs> but it's one of those where you know your background in history. And the parallels between the Federation and the Klingon Empire and the United States and the Soviet Union and how it works within this film. I'm actually just very surprised that it isn't one of those that just touched you at your, you know, in your cockles to make you go, this is a tremendous piece of, you know, complimentary art. I'm just, I'm just surprised. I, I like the film. Um, I even like that. You're going, it's just a star. My, my cousin. He's one of the Klingons. Ah. That's that's another reason why I liked it. His name is in the credits. Uh. Um, it's not it's not the the trilogy. Right. Two, three, four for sure. Um, three's not good though. It's not. I know. I I disagree. I like three. Oh, three's bad. I uh, know. It's not. Uh, I like three. Three's uh, it's much. I think it's better than four. 
But really, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, I like three quite a bit. Okay, sorry. That's that's got Christopher Lloyd in it. I know. Yeah. So, cab driver Jim is a Klingon. <laughs> Marty. Marty. <laughs> The Genesis device. <laughs> so, Einstein is there. <laughs> All right. No, they wouldn't. It's okay. I think it's a stellar performance. And my son just, I have also to say that my son loved the Undiscovered Country. He thought it was brilliant. He really did. He liked it way more than I did. And after we'd finished the entire thing, before we saw the Genesis. Okay, go on. Undiscovered Country. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. we watched them all in the span uh-huh. of like three weeks. And uh, before we saw Generations, you know, he he um, he said, I like this better than Star Wars. Okay. That that was just his take. Was, no, no, he no, said, no. Oh, he no. said there was there were six strong, in his opinion, I actually wasn't six argue. strong movies. Yeah, I think he might be right. That were were uh, way better than, I said, even the first one? He's like, it made more fucking sense to me than the last three yeah, Star I, Wars I, movies. I, I might not argue with him. You know, and of course, uh, that whole trilogy, the two, three, four... I just thought it was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I I saw The Voyage Home in the theater with my brother. My brother was old enough to remember the original series. So it was it was a big deal for him. But that was the first time I'd really seen any any of it. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, Search for Spock was on uh cable endlessly uh, even during that time because they were, they were released um so so frequently within each other. I w- became a huge Trek fan. Uh I think that was 86. I even went to some conventions in 87 and 88. Believe it or not, don't look at me that way. I'm not. I've got Gene Roddenberry's signature. All right. You know, and Denise Crosby and a whole lot of them. And I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and I am bicameral that way. I like Star Wars and Star Trek. I just wish there were better Star Wars movies. Yeah, I like, I like them both as well. But yeah. I think. Better consistency. No, yeah. with, without a doubt. I agree. Okay. A Star is Born. Yeah. Watched that actually just recently. Shocked how good it was. Yeah. I mean, I kept hearing how good it was, and I'm kind of a naturally born contrarian. So I was not anticipating liking it as much as I did, but it was... um, A exceptionally talented director the performances i thought that he drew were outstanding um let's just take him out of the equation for as an actor right i mean lady gaga who i don't have a whole lot of i don't really have anything built no stock right i don't have strong feelings one way or the other i mean she's a pop star in my mind and that's kind of it and she's like i didn't think of her as anything but a fine actress you know i was stunned i actually had to pause the movie when i said wait that's andrew dice clay what the fuck and then later it's like is that dave chappelle but i mean it was a really well-told story i mean it wasn't groundbreaking by any stretch of the imagination but it was exceptionally professionally done um the music was much better than i was anticipating and that's 100 percent subjective i know that Oh, Shallow is a good track. I mean, I really actually that was probably my least favorite song. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I was like, that yeah, one he opened with was really was good. tremendous. And you know, I thought like the uh, sequence, the Saturday Saturday Night Live sequence, which was like 
That's the type of music I freaking dislike tremendously. I didn't like it in the movie, but it made sense in the movie. Yeah. It was well done. It was like, oh, okay, I know what's going on here. No, I, I was, I, I enjoyed it tremendously. There's lots of things uh, to break down with A Star Is Born. Um, there's lots of moments in the movie. The, the one that stands out to me the most is the, you know, the first hour is almost like a comedy, and it, it really does pull you in and yes. and, and sink your teeth into. And that's what that sold it to me and Luke, and particularly when he was in the drag bar and he actually asked the guy next to him, "Is this is this a drag bar? Like I'm finally putting one and one together here." And then, uh, you know, this hick from uh, rural Arizona mm-hmm. doesn't care. He goes with the flow. Right. Well, he's and not he's, a hick. Well, he's from well, rural Arizona, yeah, okay. I, I would say. Well, he's not like a... Yeah, he's not a... He's yeah. not from Alabama. No, certainly not. Greenbow no, certainly type not. of hick. Not the hicks that are 45 minutes away from here, maybe. Right. Okay, so I mischaracterized that. Yeah. All right, so... Um, his brother seems to be Sam Elliott. No, I thought that was actually a... He's more sophisticated. Sam Elliott did an interview, um, I can't remember who with, um, Mark Marin, and it was mm-hmm. um, no, shown his age, but he's he's really, really on top of it. Go ahead. Yeah, I thought he was actually, that character was pretty well drawn, too. I mean, he was definitely an older brother who sacrificed a lot yeah. to support those which needed the help. Yeah. So, no, I was actually, you know, I thought it was a... Uh, that was remarkably good. It was. There's there's a, a couple other things that are left. I mean, first of all, like I I didn't want to see it because of the parallels of between that and my first book, Hum, Humbucker Pickup. And after I saw Star was Born, uh, well, I watched it with my son, and of course, all throughout the movie, I'm like, yeah, that's chapter one. Yeah, that's chapter five. Yeah, that's chapter nineteen. And my second book, yeah, that's that's the last. Yeah, that's pretty much. I knew that when I was writing Humbucker, I was using very well used tropes and storylines that were recycled. Um, I wanted to tell a story about some, some very different people in different circumstances, but uh, all the same notes are hit. Right. Um, this is like the fourth time a star born was, was, was made. I, I wrote humbucker God, like 10 years ago or so, or 15 years ago. And I published it 10 years ago. There's no relationship to, to this movie to be sure. <laughs> Um, I had never seen the Judy Garland version or the Christopherson version, but I knew that they exist and yeah, I, and I knew kind of, right, them. right. Um, but I, I didn't copy them at all. But after I did see this one, I did pull humbucker off of Amazon. I just thought I can't, you know, until I write a, uh, until I, I re-edit it and, and make it more concise. And, and cause when I wrote it, I thought, well, this is really the only novel I'd ever write. So I'm just going to be the great American novel. And as it turned out, I wrote four others that were much better. <laughs> and it's, I'm kind of ashamed of humbucker right now. I had a friend of mine that said, Oh, which one should I start with? And I said, the second one, he's like, isn't that going to fuck me up a little bit? I'm like, nope, oh, at this fine. point, I don't care. I think you'll get the gist <laughs> and everything's fine. Apparently, uh, once the third one. Uh, so anyway, so, so there's that, um, I was I was highly impressed with it. So there's there's also this personal aspect of it, which I, I don't want to cash in too much. But I I went to high school with a very very nice girl named Sonia Durham, and in middle school too, and Sonia was one of these remarkable uh, individuals who um, started managing rock bands at the age of 16 and started working as a as an agent for performance artists and moved out to California and uh, let anyone who wanted to get into the industry sleep on her couch for free. Uh, which one of my friends did, um, who wound up being a Mouseketeer in the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse for a number of years, and was just a, a loving and giving 
individual who then wound up being um, director of the House of Gaga. Okay. And was uh, in charge with Lady Gaga's entourage and fashion house. And this went on for a number of years until uh, Sonia uh, unfortunately contracted uh, cancer. And fought very valiantly for a number of years uh, before uh, passing away. And uh, Lady Gaga very publicly did everything that she could for her. And uh, helped her get married. uh, Helped her with her medical bills. And uh, I can't thank uh, Lady Gaga enough for helping someone that that I knew genuinely as, as a very loving and caring person. Documentary about Lady Gaga on Netflix. I can't remember the name of it, but I see Sonia on the stills while it's on, and I, I just can't watch it. It's too painful. Um, but so I didn't want to watch this film for that very reason. Uh, separate from, I don't want to watch a, right. a, a book of uh, my novelization, but I didn't want to watch it because I, I was thinking, I didn't, I didn't know how my feelings were going to be watching Lady Gaga on screen. As it, as it happens, everything's fine. Yeah. <laughs> she's she was wonderful in movie and she's got a new movie coming out next month. Yeah, the House of Gucci. The House of Gucci. And by I was ask you about by Ridley Scott. <laughs> and I can't fucking wait to watch that movie. I saw the trailer last weekend. It's pretty impressive. And yeah, I was really impressed by the trailer. And so I uh, and what's his name is in it? Al Pacino. So what's the story with uh, No Time to Die? Oh, um two hours of con- you know, conversation there about this. I mean, you, you know the ending. I know from a broad perspective the ending. Does no, no, she doesn't know. Okay, so I'm. I don't think it's going to be one of those that ruins anything for her necessarily, though. Well, I'm not into. I mean, it's a very, very no time to die is very much like a Kaiser Soze type of ending, right. and, and a Fight Club type of situation. And I'm not going to uh, spoil it for anybody. Um, in terms of in terms of a Bond film, it's more like a Bond film than the other Craig movies. Okay, it's more like uh, Timothy Dalton or Pierce Brosnan or um, or even Sean Connery. Um, <clears throat> Spectre tried to do that, tried to be like the big set pieces and the big, but the plot in Spectre just wasn't there. Right, and I think that was the most disappointing part of, of Spectre. It's it's definitely there for No Time to Die, and it's it's the perfect encapsulation, I think, of the Craig years, which is kind of amazing if you think about it. It's like five movies, 15 years. That's pretty shocking. Or something like that. 2006, I think, was yeah, Casino right. Royale. Yeah. Um, and his career has has been a controversial one uh, because it it very much deconstructs what Bond used to be. You know, Bond, you know, it started off with blue eyes and and blonde hair, and people were pissed off enough about that. But Casino Royale wound up being, a, you know, a, almost a page-by-page retelling of the book. And um, everybody was pretty much fine with that until they saw Bond cry at the end of Casino Royale because Vesper had died, and he right. had so much guilt about it. And, you know, th- that upset some people. Like, Bond is not that person who cries. But you know, he was he was distraught at the, in- at the end of the book. It was very... Very close. And Quantum of Solace just confused people. Like, <laughs> Bond's running around the middle of the desert worried about water rights. That, that movie was not good. You know, the, and I think that was really wrapped up in, into a couple of things. First, like, people didn't understand that Quantum was effectively Spectre. Mm-hmm. 
and that was the same organization. They and truth be told, I don't think the screenwriters and the producers really figured that out until Spectre. But the other part of it was, I think that Matthew Amalric, although he's a fantastic actor, he just was not that villain. Like when you when you when he's introduced to him, like he's in like a warehouse mm-hmm. um, in a Hawaiian shirt, like hitting stamps or something. It's just it wasn't exactly like yeah, Fat Koto is Mr. Big coming out and like this is our villain. So I think there was there was some problems with that. Spectre, of course, had the previous issues, but e- each one of those, the <clears throat> with the exception of No Time to Die, they were they were smaller set pieces. They were smaller issues being at play. They were right. smaller spy stories, and they were more like the novels. And they were they were less like the uh, you know the volcano that opens up with the huge yeah. door and that sort of sense of the spectacle was gone. And even even Daniel Craig said that you know in Casino Royale, like he was upset that there were no gadgets. That type of situation, like they tried to pass them off, but effectively it was, it wasn't there. And no time to die is is, as far as the Craig years being being these specific movies to break down another thing about Bond that we thought was going to be the case. Well, Bond isn't going to stay with a woman. Well, then he stayed with a woman. Bond isn't ever really going to retire. Well, then he really actually did retire. Like in the beginning of No Time to Die, he's retired. He's been out of the game not for one or two, but for many years. And then, of course, the ending is something that Bond does not do, which you know right. and some people yeah. don't. No, 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 no. And you know, that will never happen. And then it happened. And at the end of it, uh, I like I, I was just lucky to sleep in the same house as my family. I went to see it with my wife and child, and uh, they were they were ready to leave me there because the credits rolled and. And my wife said, I hated it. And my son said, I hated it. And I said, I, I just fucking loved it. Mm-hmm. I just loved it. It's, it was the perfect end to, to that segment of Bond history. And I don't know where they're going to go with it next. And I, I would like, if I, were, if I were to bet, I would say that they're probably going to do like a reboot of Dr. No or something like that. Right. Uh, take take the original and not it may not reboot it in modern day like say it's 1960 again like literally like literally go back to that to that book and that and start that way I would be very interested to see if they could find an actor and sign them on for five movies mm-hmm. and then do the first five Bond films over again I would be interested in seeing that and what they what they do with it but uh, uh, it, it leaves that it leaves that open but you know there were there were a lot of things like uh, in the rewatchables, um, which we we love to listen mm-hmm. to every week. Uh, Bill Simmons has this fantastic category, which is what hasn't aged well. There's a lot in Bond that hasn't aged well. It doesn't bother me, well, yeah. but but it hasn't aged well. There's a lot of people uh, that are going to that are born in this century. They're going to look back at the 60s and 70s and say, "What the fuck is this? Mm. Like this is this is not right." And I'm not saying that they're wrong. Um, it is what it is. And it shouldn't be changed. Uh, of course not. And we've had that argument on this podcast before. Um, but I just I just don't have a problem with it. I think that it's a great way to start over. And I, th- I think that it's, it's risky as hell. And it's Bond taking risks. Like I don't think that they've ever taken risks before. They like things to stay the no, same. They like things to say, you know, and, and, and there's a certain aspect of, of let's just keep doing the same thing over. And that's what we constantly criticize Hollywood for. Oh yeah, We constantly criticize Hollywood. Why don't you do something new? Why don't you do something, you know? And so here it is. No time to die. It's something completely new in m- many aspects. 
that still fits in the tradition and people are pissed off over it. Like I, I understand that the conversation that we had on the way home in the car was very similar to what a lot of people had all over this country after they walked out of no time to die. Mm-hmm. What the fuck is this? I can't believe this happened. And you know, there, there's actually a scene where there's at the end of, there's a monologue bond has a monologue instead of the villain, it's him. And uh, again, and within the context of the movie, it makes a whole lot of sense. And my wife and my son were complaining about it. Villains monologue. You know, um, Scaramanga monologues. Bond does not monologue. And so then, of course, I said, well, maybe he was chasing Amy. Mm-hmm. And my, I hear my son in the back of the truck say, uh, I hate you. <laughs> and uh, and that was it. So, I mean, by the time we got home, like, I just knew, like, I, I wasn't going to sleep in that room. Right. So I slept in the spare room. And the next day, it was just sort of testing the waters to see, okay, is this everything all right? Is everything okay? And even making breakfast and getting up in the morning doing duties, like it was just cold silence. And uh, film is very important in my family. I've made it important. Um, for the most part, my son and my daughter and my uh, my daughter and my wife, we we all get on the same page, particularly when it comes to pop culture and Marvel movies and everything. But uh, with this, it was very divisive, very divisive. And I expect that it will be uh, the most controversial Bond film ever made. And and I don't think that it. I don't think that it should be. Um, I mean, to me, Moonraker should be the most controversial Bond film ever made. <laughs> like, like it's crap. It's just total crap. Well, yeah, Why did you make a bunch of crap? It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And or or Diamonds Are Forever, where it's just very clear that Sean Connery is not engaged in the yeah, acting. He, he wants that paycheck, and you know that's <laughs> and it. And he got it. You know, um, or George Lazenby, where it's just there's a disconnect, I think, between um, what Bond was and and where it was going, where they thought that it was going if they had made another one. So I think that's it on on No Time to Die. But Rami Malek was amazing. Uh, Lea Seydoux was amazing. And, And I loved it. I'm interrupting this program to let you know that we took a break and we had an enormous airplane fly over the backyard. And then, of course, we whipped out our phones and started uh, talking about Letterboxd, a lot of Letterboxd. We just started looking at everything that we were watching. Here we go. And the filmmakers there have got an outsized reputation. You know, and I think this is a good example of what made that decade kind of special in that it's kind of an unremarkable movie, right? It's not anything that probably should be remembered as a, you know, groundbreaking, genre-defining film. But it's one of those where it's off-kilter enough but still maintaining a popular entertainment objective to be a really interesting flick. Um, every character within it is you know, tremendously flawed. You know, there's nobody to root for per se, but they're all compelling still. Um, the Hemingway stand-in husband... Um, I, I I hate Elliot Gould, except for this movie. <laughs> you know, it is one of those things where it all works. 
and the individuals, the actors, and the characters' quirks are played to advance the story, and it made me more interested as opposed to driving me away. You know, there wasn't any specific objective to, you know, appeal to the masses, but there was definitely an effort to be appealing. So, which is kind of weird to say. I don't know if I can put my finger on exactly why the contradiction worked for me, but it's, it's, it was quite good. And I don't know if Altman's my favorite by any stretch of the imagination from, you know, for the most part, his stuff, you know, it's okay. But I really did dig this flick. Yeah, I'm in and off of Allman. I like The Long Goodbye. I kind of see The Long Goodbye as like part three of this weird thing going on in the 70s that starts with Chinatown and right. moves through Night Moves yeah. and then ends with The Long Goodbye. I know that in the 80s and in the 90s, it didn't have particularly that good of a reputation. No. And just people were like, fuck, Elliot Gould is Marlowe. Like yeah, what? It doesn't what, work. What is this? Yeah. And I saw it, I think, the first time. I think I saw it on the IFC channel. In 2000 or 2001. And, Sounds right. And um, I was really blown away by it. It was like, oh, my God, this this guy is fucking hopeless. Like, he's yeah. really he's not Sam Spade. Yeah. He's he's really not in control. Like, he can't even decide what type of fucking cat food he wants to get. Well, no, he knows exactly what kind of cat food he wants. None? No, no, there was a very specific brand. But he is willing to be bent over backwards by his cat because he goes to get he gets the cat food and he comes back and then he closes the door to the kitchen because he doesn't get the right brand and he hides away from the cat to trick the cat into thinking it's the right cat food. It was like hilarious. So the cat is running him. Yeah, the cat is yeah. running him. He's like, well, look. Eh. Whereas Sam Spade wouldn't even have a cat, or if he did, he'd shoot it. Exactly. It was like you know, if you don't want to eat, you I guess you just don't eat. Yeah, and and there was like this. There's a lot of things going on that, that Altman is just, like, playing with you. Just, like, openly playing with you. Um, the cats, uh, the, 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 the supermarket scene in the beginning, when he comes back to his apartment, there's, like, these ladies in the background who yes. are fully naked and exercising. And one of them, I thought at first, was, like, <laughs> this is, like, like a body thong. Mm-hmm. Like, she's wearing, like, some sort of sheer thing over herself. But then I watched it on the Criterion channel on the, on the big wall. Uh-huh. No. <laughs> no, she's no. Like, no, she's, like, naked. It's, it's not a body stocking. It's complete. It's, it was shocking. And that's just Altman just, like, fucking with you. And the whole movie seems like Altman is, Altman is just fucking with but you. But no, agree. You know, up until the very end where it just finally seems like, okay, he's got his act together. But it's a really interesting exercise, and it works really good. Yeah, I, re- I really do like that movie. Blowout. Blowout. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of lukewarm on it, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's not that it's not that it wasn't impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've seen a Brian De Palma film that wasn't impressive. He definitely knows what he's doing. Even in Bonfire of the Vanities, I think that he knew what he was doing. Sure. From a technical standpoint. Um, and I definitely got the story. And as as conspiracy, like I, I think it falls right into place with the uh, parallax view and mm-hmm. films of that nature. And, and that one shot of Travolta holding Nancy Allen and the fireworks going off in the background. Holy fuck, man! Like I, I don't know how he accomplished that, um, but I mean, I have to say, like. In terms of like striking power, that's like top ten best shots on film ever. Right. 
I was really blown away about it, but I, I just felt like I was really not invested in her and which pains me to say, cause I'm a big fan of Nancy Allen, but you know, can we, you know, the dingbat blonde is just, just tired of seeing that sure, person on screen. From it it is. 50 years ago. Yeah, it is. Um, and why he cared about her. Um, the technical aspect of the sound man's job and the scream and the cutting together and the shot and all of, all of that was dead on and fascinating. And, um, John Lithgow, I thought was miscast as the, the villain. Um, but you know, like a lot of, a lot of De Palma's films, I, you know, I think they're loaded with great ideas. I just don't know how the, the narrative strings everything together. Is there any De Palma film you like? No, I, I'm trying. And I, I, I really don't think there is, and that's not a criticism. I mean, if I'm just not a not. De Palma fan. Yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, when I was a kid, I fucking worshipped The Untouchables. I just, I thought that was just well, so an amazing. Really good. Mo- yeah, I'm not saying that it's not an amazing movie, right. but you know, I just, I just don't think like if given a chance to watch it again, I'd, I'd, I'd rather watch something else. Yeah. Okay. And and nothing against De Palma. You know, there was a great. Uh, Great podcast on uh, Ben Mankiewicz did on Turner Classic Movies. Yes. It's called the uh, The Plot Thickens. Yeah. It was on the making of the Bonfire of the Vanities. Mm-hmm. Uh, enraptured man, every episode loved it, ate it up. Love hearing the how they make movies. This was the sound quality was better than that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Black Widow. But three and a half stars. Three and a half stars. Okay, that sounds about right. Pretty good. You know, it is one of those that for the Marvel movies in particular, I'm, when I'm rating them, I'm rating against their own family, right? It was absolutely positively better than, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy two. It was better than Iron Man two. It was better than some of the lesser ones, but it wasn't transcendent. It was a very good. Medium of the road, yet entertaining, you know. Why did people not like it? It was panned. I mean, it really was. I don't, I don't remember any of the reviews one way or the other, right? And it wasn't it wasn't exceptional, right? No, I quite liked it. I, I did too, but it wasn't exceptional. It was good disposable entertainment, and I liked it. But I don't know if it was... Anything that drove a larger story, which is what they're all based on, right? This is that, that is part of the problem that yeah, it was basically a standalone. Yeah, and that's part of the problem that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has created for itself is if it doesn't drive the greater narrative, it's almost inconsequential. And to a certain degree, because it didn't, it therefore was. But I think as a standalone, it was fine. You know, I I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it. I remember, I remember liking it quite a bit. I, I thought the ending was a bit much. You know, it, it again, is... The big refinery finale. Yeah, the big thing with the stuff and the booms and the bangs and the flying and the falling. And it's like, I don't need that. It's so much better before it gets to that point. I don't know how many times I've seen this. It yeah. feels like 
25 times, although I know that's not accurate. Would have been better as if it kept as a spy yeah, film like uh, Captain and Winter Soldier. Yeah, for sure. And that's where I, I do remember writing that. It's like, it's a lesser version of that. Yeah. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't. it was a lesser version. And when it just stays confined, it's more effective. But we turned it into this extravaganza, which it never was. Yeah, I, I thought David David Harbour was amazing. Yeah, pretty good. And I mean, the fact that he had like Karl Marx tattooed on his fingers—it's a bit much. And yeah. I remember watching the trailer for Black Widow, just like, oh my god, this is a train wreck. This is not going to be good. I did not like the trailers at all, and I saw all three of them. And this is why I don't like to watch trailers, you know. Yeah, I wish I could watch, never watch them, but I always end up yeah. watching them. And uh, I mean, David Harbour just didn't look good. Like the Red Guardian just looked like just campy, and it looked like a bad comedy. And then actually, as I was watching the film, I was like, this is nothing like the fucking trailer. Right. This is not leading us anywhere. Like, this is actually a really good movie. It's, it's like the trailer lied to me and told me it was bad. Like, why would you Why would you make a trailer that convinced people it was bad? You know, and um, and what are your thoughts about the lawsuit? I, I don't know enough about it to have any opinions whatsoever. I really don't. Well, I, my take on it. So what, what exactly is the basis of the lawsuit? The basis of the lawsuit is that Disney released Black Widow on Disney Plus and theaters on the same day. Yes. And um, Ms. Johansson. But it's a premium cost. It was a premium cost okay. that you had to pay in order to see the movie right. on Disney Plus in, in addition to your subscription service. Mm-hmm. And uh, it definitely kept people at home. And I won't have to go to the theater. I'll just buy it here at home. Sure. The thing is that Mrs. Johansson had a uh, clause in her contract that paid her a percentage of the tickets only in the movie theater, not on Disney Plus Premium. Okay. So if you did not go to the theater and you did not buy a ticket, Mrs. Johansson got nothing. Okay. Whereas if you did, she got a percentage of your ticket. So Disney Plus, Disney as an organization, pretty much factored, you know, if we... Get more people to buy it on Disney Plus. We won't have to pay her as much money, and we can probably make the same amount of money. Huh. We, but but she gets less. But that that possibility did not exist when she prior to the prior to the pandemic. Or she signed. They filmed this movie before the pandemic. Yeah. It was supposed to come out in March. But Disney Plus didn't exist to the general public. I don't. I don't remember when it came online. Uh, it, was, it was before the pandemic. It was, I think it was that January. Um, and, and Black Widow was supposed to, it, it didn't come out during the pandemic. Disney Plus did not come out during the pandemic. I, I don't remember. I don't think so. Um, it was not 2019, though, because uh, we got it the minute that it came out because they hooked on so many Star Wars things to right. it, right? And then you knew that Mandalorian was coming out, which was definitely during the pandemic. That was. Right. And, and Black Widow was supposed to come out in March. Lockdown in California was, I think, the 13th. That was the first state that did it. It was in California when it happened. And then Black Widow was supposed to come out, I think, the following weekend. And they canceled. They pushed it back uh, six months and then a year. And then this this finally happened. Um, the thing is, like, this this whole situation was entirely avoidable uh, due to the situation with Wonder Woman 1984, which happened last year, in which Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot uh, both had clauses in their contracts that said, I will be, get paid a certain percentage of everyone's movie ticket. Right. And when Warner Brothers decided to release that onto HBO Max on the same day, uh, they saw this coming and they made separate deals with Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot to, to, to assuage them 
that they were missing out on all of this money. And I don't remember what it was. I heard some rumor that it was seven to ten million to to each one each. So uh, they they took that money, and then I hear I also understand that Denzel Washington got the same thing for uh, Pretty Little Things because he had the same thing in his contract. He was going to get a minority percentage, and when they released it to HBO Max, they they went to him and said. Um, this is a couple of bucks to, so that you'll be happy because you're not going to be making nearly as much money. And, and he accepted it. They didn't care to do that to Miss Johansson. They didn't even bother uh, to make a deal. And they didn't tell her that they were going to release it onto Disney Plus until like two weeks before the damn thing came out. So there was a clear but indication they, that Disney was trying to screw her out of this well, percentage. I mean, they don't owe her shit. They don't owe her shit. They, they paid her to act. They paid her to act. They made a deal. They signed a contract saying, we will pay you a percentage of the movie ticket. Right. And that there you go. And then they deliberately released it onto Disney Plus same so day, it, knowing full well that fewer so people will go she, to see the movie. Well, that wasn't why they did it. Right? Oh, I think it was. What, you think they released it on Disney Plus to screw jo- Scarlett Johansson out of a couple bucks? To save themselves the expense of having to pay her as much money. Yes. I... I tend to doubt it. Then why did they settle with her? Because they didn't want this protracted, you know, lawsuit going through. Oh, the if, if you're if you're Disney, you can afford that lawsuit, and you can that afford to take be, them all to court. Yeah, and you can afford to say, okay, you know, here here's a couple bucks to get gone. They should have done that at the beginning, and it would have been cheaper. It may not have been. I don't know what they paid her. I don't know what the offer would have been to begin with. But it's one of those things where I don't think that for a second that. They said, you know what, we're not going to, you know, we can make a, an extra $15 million by not by putting on Disney+. Plus. That seems absurd. Because what about this uh, Eternals movie that's coming out? Yeah. You think, um, what's, what's, her, what's her name? Angelina Jolie. Yeah, she doesn't have the same type of deal? I would imagine that she would. But it's not coming out on Disney+. Plus. Well, that's a Marvel movie, is it not? Just like Black Widow was. It's not coming out on Disney Plus same day? No. Well, maybe they learned their fucking lesson. I doubt it. Well, there seems to be a, a motive. Like, whoever was in charge of this decision uh-huh. at Disney, and specifically in the Black Widow situation, I think that person was operating under a set of rules or circumstances that might have been original in this case. And I don't, I don't understand the entire thing. Like, for instance, when the entire thing went down, they tried to basically slander her. Ms. Johansson. With what? Oh, they said, uh, you're trying to take advantage of the fact that uh, you're basically playing the pandemic card. I, I mean, if right. you say so, I believe it. I don't remember seeing it. But that, was, that was their statement. And, and then, like, the week after, they said, we are canceling. They said this in the statement. They are canceling all projects Scarlett Johansson has with Disney. And that's a vindictive move. If you say so, I believe it. I have no idea. So I'll take your word. Now, after after the the arbitration settled, uh-huh. they said, "Okay, we are now back on back on track with all of the." So well, was, I thought they were all canceled. Well, that's obviously but, yeah, trying to apply pressure. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah, that's definitely trying to apply all right. pressure. Meanwhile, Mr. Johansson didn't say anything. She didn't say shit. I, I, oh, when she I, filed the lawsuit, she was she was out. She was like, "I'm letting the lawyers handle this." Yeah, I mean. It just seems like someone at Disney Plus is very vindictive about her specifically. It seems like she was singled out for special treatment. Why and what for, I don't know. And it could be. But I, like I said, I, I didn't follow that closely. 
So I, I, I don't know. Unfortunately, though, it's also another dimension here. Is it just it makes Ms. Johansson look greedy? Obviously, and, it has an impact yeah. on my perception of her at all. So yeah, not that effective, at least for me. I'm just assuming that if you're in that world, you know, I don't remember who it was that was cut out of Doctor Strange. It was very pissed off at at the agent, like uh, because I was cut out of that movie. I was I was xed out of. Um, a number of dollars. Yeah, if you're cut out completely, yeah. I get it. But, I mean, they still released it to theaters. Yeah, but every, everybody a, wants to be in a Marvel movie now, like, obviously. Well, I mean, but it is one of those things, going back to the original point, right? Um, they originally were going to release it sometime in 2020. Yeah. It got pushed back six months. Yeah. So they had an original advertising campaign when it was going to come out the first time. Yeah. Then there was a... The there was a second date set. I think it was Christmas. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think so. so. And I think there was a some degree of advertising. That, yeah. Of and money. that got pushed back. And then they did it again for the third time. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it wasn't one of those things where they were trying to diminish her engagement. I think they were trying to I think they were trying to save money. Well, like, I mean, they, but they kept spending money. So well, that's, people, that's not her fault that they set three different dates and they couldn't follow through on it. Yeah, but that's also one of those things where – it's kind of counter to what you're saying. I mean, they were obviously spending money. I mean, that, that's sunk cost. Yes. It could be that they were trying to save it on the back end by not having to pay her. Maybe. But it seems like such a small percentage, it doesn't seem worth it. But I don't know. So you may be 100% right. It, I'm not saying, like, this isn't, like, in-game money. Right. I'm not it, saying that it's in-game it money. Like but let's just say it's a billion dollars. Right. I mean, and Marvel movies do make a billion dollars. They do regularly. That's enormous. I mean, if if she has half a 1%. That's not nothing. That's an extreme amount of money. Yeah. I mean, I... I and a lot of them are getting that now. I, I, what is that? I'm sure you're right. I just don't know. So I retract everything I said previously because I literally <laughs> do not know. It just seems one of those things where it's like, okay, that seems like a lot of trouble. All right, I want to talk to you about December 2020. December 2020? Yeah, on your letterboxed. Oh, boy, what did I okay. do now? On the 4th of December, you watched Swingers. <laughs> yeah. And then on the 11th, three stars. Yeah. Okay. On the 11th of December, you watched Demolition Man. That's a terrible movie. Two stars. Yeah. Then on the 12th of December, the very next fucking day, you watched... How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Zero stars. Half. Oh. You give it half. Then on the 17th of December, you watch Godzilla, King of the Monsters. One and a half? Three stars. Oh, boy, that's more than I would have thought. Then you didn't watch another movie for 20 fucking days. <laughs> <laughs> that's not accurate. That's probably the that's probably no, Next movie you watched was on the 8th of January. You watched Extraction. Three and a half stars. Yeah. I was about to say, it's probably inaccurate. I probably just didn't update. Well, it may not be inaccurate at all. So, I'm just saying, okay, dude, you you watched four movies in a month. Basically, you watched one one weekend, and then the second weekend you watched two. And then Uh the third weekend you watched one. Right. Okay? That seems actually probably possible. (laughs) You need to watch more movies. I don't agree, but I also had to see family and extended family, and I had to go to town, and I had this, and I had that. I know you're saying, but it was a pandemic. You weren't going anywhere. Not accurate. I'm in Texas. We're still going places. Not wearing a mask. I'm going to go back to my December of 2020. Oh, God. This is going to be embarrassing.
The good news is I didn't want didn't like any single movie I watched in December. <clears throat> Holy shit. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. So you watched six times as many movies. Uh, the Mystery of D.B. Cooper, Citizen Kane, Mank, RKO 281. The Happiest Season, Citizen Kane, Mank, Z. The Battle Over Citizen Kane, 39 Steps, My Neighbor Totoro. Transformers, Dark of the Moon. Oh, that's so One bad. Star, Overlord, The Rink. Payday, Gone in 60 Seconds, 1974, Princess Mononoke, The Death of Stalin, Malcolm X, Wonder Woman, 1984, The Miracle on 34th wait, Street. Wait, wait. I think in your letterbox it was January. Oh, shit. Okay, never mind. Uh, Miracle on 34th Street, uh, 1947, Tenet, The Seven Seal, El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. Which I think you ranked higher than you did the television show. Yeah, I really liked El Camino. I really, really liked it. Um, okay. I mean, the series is okay. <laughs> oh, I just, I think, um, now El Camino is meaningless without the series for sure. Right. Um, I really think that Jesse's struggle in El Camino was so compelling. Well, and. I rooted for him like I never rooted for him in the series. Oh, full, full disclosure, I haven't seen El Camino. Oh, you need to, you need to see El Camino. Oh, I agree. Okay, February. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three movies. What did you do in January? In January or February? January twenty twenty-one. It's not going to take you that much to scroll back. I just have to go back to myself. One, two, three, four. Five. Four. Five. Five. What, what are they? Extraction. Previously referenced, three and a half. Wonder Woman, 1984, two, and I was probably being kind. WandaVision, I have three. So I didn't watch a movie. It was a television show. And that was probably a good four, four and a half until like the last two episodes. And then Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers. Okay. So my January, Platoon, 1984, Brazil, Jeremiah Johnson, Howl's Moving Castle, The Professor and the Madman, Pretend It's a City, Fast and the Furious, Hobbs and Shaw, Night Stalker, Nuremberg, JFK, Man on Fire, Night and Day, Monster Hunter, The Marksman, The Ripper, the Born Identity, The Interpreter, The Maltese Falcon, West Side Story, Sabrina, The Lady from Shanghai, Yesterday. So are you trying to illustrate you not only watched more movies, but better quality as well? No, my theory here, <laughs> <laughs> my theory here, and I'm going to impress upon you this, if you watched better movies, uh -huh. I think you would watch more. Oh, I don't disagree with that. I think the reason that you don't watch very many movies is because the movies that you do watch are not very good. Oh, that hurts. So, two more words for you, sir, and we might close on this. Squid Game.
And that's it, folks. It descended quickly into chaos. There was another plane. There was a helicopter. There were a few more beers. There was an argument over Squid Game and Tenet. And uh, it's just not worth listening to the, you know, the last half hour of this. So we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks very much for tuning in again to the Super 70 podcast. There is another special edition on the plate next month, which is 10 times better than this. This was just us rambling. We actually had a goal for the next special edition, and that was the Decades Rematch for 1987. Stay tuned to the Super 70 Podcast, and thank you for listening. Is cinema such a useful tool for you when you're trying to analyze the world? Mostly, the way I talk about cinema is simply 
to use it to illustrate where we are today ideologically. How do we experience our lives? What do we find worth fighting for? What's the meaning of our life or small ritual? You have to look at Hollywood, where you get it in pure distilled form.